Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Hail Lucifer, bringer of light, for we are the Illuminati, and you are listening to the Leaving Eden podcast. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Maybe I'll put in some echo there for that. My name is Gavriel Hakoen, and I am here with my BFF and co-host, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing tonight, Sadie? I am doing fantastic. I have been so psyched about this entire episode oh my god this is gonna be so much fun yeah this is one that we've been working on for a while and we've been like excited to do for a while um today actually we're talking about the story of a young man who finds out that he is an wizard and that he must go off to school to learn magic but before long he is caught in a worldwide battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil but no we are not talking about harry potter we are talking about somebody much much worse uh, <laughs> we're talking about that's true yeah, we're talking about a man named john todd sadie do you want to tell us why that name might sound familiar to some of our long time listeners yeah absolutely before i do 
I want to give you a blanket trigger warning for this episode. This entire episode has brief mentions of satanic ritual abuse as well as sexual assault throughout the episode. We're not going to go into anything, any graphic details of any of that in this episode, but just be aware those two topics are going to pop up pretty much constantly. So as far as who John Todd is, let's back up and, and review the satanic panic. Cool. The Satanic Panic, of course, was a period of time from it really started gaining steam around 1980 and continued through the 90s, in which there were many, many allegations made of something called Satanic Ritual Abuse, in which many Americans believed Satanists and witches tortured and killed women, children, and pets as part of their plot to take over the world. These allegations went mainstream. They appeared on national news and talk shows like Geraldo. There were books written, and all of this directly influenced the life that we live today. One place that you might notice it is explicit labels that you might see on some of your favorite album covers. Those happened because of the PMRC and the Satanic Panic. But who's John Todd and what does he have to do with it? In early 1978, so just before the satanic panic thing really hit mainstream, a new and exciting speaker was going around evangelical churches in America, including IFB churches. He claimed that he was born into a family of witches closely tied to the Illuminati. He claimed that he was initiated into witchcraft by George McGovern, raised by witches, the heir to the position of the Grand Druid High Priest. He claimed that he knew Charles Manson that he was trained by powerful occultists. And then he converted to Christianity due to a strange series of events involving Jack Chick. And now in 1978, he's risking life and limb to warn Christians everywhere of the satanic evils hiding behind every corner and the impending Illuminati takeover of the world, which he predicted to happen in 1980. This guy is the Forrest Gump of the Satanic Panic. He shows <laughs> up everywhere you look. And his story was one of the foundations of the Satanic Panic thing. Now, this guy, if you think that list of claims that I just read off was crazy, I have not even started. <laughs> I want to say we usually work in one Google Doc and we write out in that document how the flow of the episode is going to go. We put our sources in that doc. If there's anything important that we want to make sure we say, we write it there. Transitions between one topic and the other, that kind of thing all goes in a Google Doc that we work off of when we record. On some really intense episodes in the past, we've had to have two Google Docs, like one of them for the regular stuff, but another one for all the research and the backup for what we're saying. Like the Paul Sand episode, the Hiles First Family of Fundamentalism episodes, we've had two Google Docs. For this episode, for the first time ever, we've had not two, not three, but four Google Docs running simultaneously. Because there is so much, so much information. So you may remember in the Chick Comics episode, the Beefy Voice for Jesus episode, I mentioned that I didn't think Jack Chick single-handedly started the satanic panic, but I thought that it had to involve him somehow. This is it. This is how he's involved. So John Todd, who claims to be an ex-grand uh, druid high priest, along with Mike Warnke, Herschel Smith, and David Hansen, all had wild personal stories that confirmed and greatly added to the rising panic about Satanism in the 1970s. Their claims of what they had been through in their lives were spread by people like Jack Chick and others, and they became part of the cultural consciousness. Today, we're going to focus on John Todd's story. We're going to go into some of his specific claims, see if there's anything that we can disprove or prove, 
and talk about how his claims influence the world that we live in now. Yeah, so I know that you guys who are listening now have all heard tell of the Illuminati. Like that that's just like a, a thing in culture. People know oh, the Illuminati's behind XYZ, whatever. Thing. Yeah, Beyonce is part of it because she makes a triangle with her hands on stage. The coded messages on the back of the do- that this is where that comes from. When this guy's saying it's the Illuminati conspiracy, this is the guy who started saying it's an Illuminati conspiracy. The Illuminati are running everything. And I'm sure all of you who are listening to this have heard somebody say that or have heard people like jokingly say that and joking about it. This is where that comes from. This ep- like this guy, this one guy, John Todd. And we're going to talk about maybe where did he get those ideas? And <laughs> it is fascinating. <laughs> it's even funnier than you could imagine no like we started working on this episode because we got a hold of uh, the transcript of a speech that this guy gave and we felt that it was too much for us to like we went in thinking oh let's look up some of the claims we made, made a speech maybe we can draw a line to a satanic panic and we can absolutely draw a direct line from this guy to the satanic panic but like that's maybe five percent of what we found it just spiraled and not like not only did this guy probably maybe 40 percentedly start the satanic panic but he also probably started QAnon. like there were claims that this guy made as part of his allegations that are still part of QAnon today and he was like the first guy to make them this guy is responsible for bringing all of these deep state illuminati whatever conspiracies into the mainstream and together with evangelical christianity so as you can probably tell this is a lot of information we're going to do our best to make it make sense by going through chronologically so we'll let you know what his story was about what happened in each year and then we'll dig we'll dig into those stories as we tell them to see what we know to be true, if there was anything we were able to disprove. And then at the end, we'll try to sew it up for you and paint a picture of why we feel confident enough to say that this guy probably started QAnon. Yes, yes, yes. But before we get into that, I just need to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. The cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies can pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there's some things that you can do. You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Leaving Eden Podcast, where there are extended and uncensored versions of most of our episodes. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. And you can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus, where you can join in the discussion with other fans of this show uh share your stories share your thoughts share your memes all of the good stuff uh anything i'm forgetting sadie uh i think that is it except for uh thanking the faith promise missions patrons that's true i love you faith promise missions patrons i love all our patrons they're also great faith promise missions patrons though your names are andrew rocant Brittany. it's Brittany, bitch carrie r crystal patterson eleanor donahue emery fair losser hope norum jessica tambo 
Kater Wee, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Lorena Watson, what, what, Mary Martin, Rachel Bernadowitz, Rebecca Hoyt, Sadie's actual BFF Morgan, Sarah Reese, Shane Horton, and Wes the Cowboy, Yeehaw. All right. That's everything. Yeah. Thank you so much to all of our patrons and a special thank you to our Faith Promise Missions patrons. Yeah. We're going to try to get uh, another patron uh, Faith Promise Missions live stream. And then eventually we're going to do a a live stream, um, a live chat with all of our patrons uh, probably later this summer. That'll be fun. I want to, yeah, I want to do it for our podcast anniversary. Yeah. So so that's in like August. Yes. So yeah. And then, and then we'll have like, it'll be like on a Saturday or something. It'll be a good time. Okay. Let's do it. You want to take us through it? Yeah. But we actually have to start back in the 1600s. So when John Todd traveled around IFB and other conservative churches in the United States, his major claim was that he had been born into the Collins family, who were the family that brought witchcraft to the Americas, to the New World. He claimed that his family was just full of witches. Most of them are witches, and they had close ties to the Illuminati, and that he was the heir to this family of witches, and he was next in line to be the Grand Druid High Priest. Then he named several other families that you've probably heard of who he claimed were either witch families or Illuminati, the Astor family, the Bundy family come to mind. We'll get into a little bit of that. But everything else that he claims is predicated on this one claim that the Collins family is a prominent witchcraft Illuminati associated family. So that was the first thing that I wanted to dig into. And I thought that I wouldn't find anything that this was just some kind of delusional, self-important claim, but boy, was I wrong. Really? Yeah. People who are really big on this theory tend to find everyone with the last name Collins that they can potentially connect to witchcraft or Satanism or someone they believe to be in the Illuminati. But let me back up. John Todd is not the only person to ever make this claim. This has been urban legend since pretty much since it happened during the Salem Witch Trials. Really? Yeah. And people who believe in this theory tend to collect a lot of people with the last name Collins and then potentially try to connect them to witchcraft or Satanism or to someone else that they believe to be in the Illuminati. So we need to talk about Fritz Springmeier, uh, a.k.a. Victor Earl Schoofs. He wrote this book, 13 Bloodlines of the Illuminati. He says, here's an example of how they connect anyone with the last name Collins to witchcraft. Springmeier says that actor Joan Collins was clearly a part of this witchcraft family. Here's his reasoning. She's Jewish. She played a witch in a movie. She was once involved in a ceremony with the Queen of England. She was friends with Jane Mansfield and Sammy David Davis Jr., who he claims are both, quote, publicly known to be Satanists. Joan Collins knew Henry Kissinger, and she was acquainted with the Onassis family, who he claims are, quote, kings within the Illuminati. Therefore, based on this evidence, Joan Collins is, if not a high-level witch herself, definitely part of the Collins witchcraft family. So what is the, what's the QAnon phrase, though? Is, the, is nothing happens by accident? Yeah, it's either that or, or there's no such thing as coincidence. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. But hold your horses because we are going to get into QAnon eventually. Okay. I just want to take a sidebar here to let our listeners know. When we were researching this guy, Springmeyer, that, that wrote this 13 Bloodlines of the Illuminati book. Like the picture that came up when we Googled him on all the websites was a mugshot from when he robbed a bank. Yep. <laughs> 
I mean, he's also from right here in good old Portland, Oregon, which makes me feel super secure. Yeah, we should see if he wants to come on the show. Um, <laughs> if you want to, if not. you want to hear uh, uh, this guy Springmeyer or, or, or whatever his name is on the Leaving Eden podcast, please send us an email. I found his uh, Facebook account. Um, really? I don't think I want him on the Leaving Eden podcast. Yeah, probably good call. <laughs> but I, I got curious because this is the this is the first claim that John Todd makes that's like a solid specific claim. And Springmeyer has a huge list of people with the last name Collins who are supposedly associated with Illuminati type activities. So what I wanted to know is how common of a last name is Collins. So Collins was the number 52 last name in the 2000 census and the number 59 last name in the 2010 census. For reference, I looked at my last name. Carpenter was number 211 in the 2000 census and number 231 in the 2010 census. So Collins is significantly more of a common last name. Smith was number one and Johnson was number two in both censuses. Yeah. By that law, I mean, if you look at my surname and uh, all of its permutations to see who I'm connected to, you might come to the inclusion you might come to the conclusion that this podcast is produced and is part of an international Jewish conspiracy. I told you <laughs> to stop referencing the international <laughs> Jewish conspiracy on this podcast. The listeners are going to figure it out. Uh, no, Too many we're, ta- we're, ta- we're talking actually we're talking about the international Jewish conspiracy next month, no lie. True. Uh, <laughs> but that's exactly where I'm going with this. He pulled all of these names, including astronaut Michael Collins, uh, a branch of Collinses that have been in the insurance and several authors with that that last name, and an oil baron from the 1800s, and tried to connect all of them to the Illuminati. I wonder if he's going to say that Phil Collins is part of the Illuminati and his song In the Air Tonight is to do with uh, witchcraft and magic. Weirdly, I did not notice Phil Collins on his list. I guess they probably just assume that uh, like rock music in general is, is Illuminati conspiracy, so you just assume that he's part of it. So back to reality, though, or back closer to reality, I guess. The best I can find for why the Collins family is reported to be this big family of witches, in in the actual historical sense, how this rumor got started, is that several people with that last name were accused of witchcraft in Salem and early New England. This was explored in the TV show Dark Shadows, which has made researching this a good deal more complicated because I've come across some documents and had to really pay attention to make sure they're historical record and not Dark Shadows fanfic. So that was the best that I could find on why the Collins Illuminati family myth is so prevalent in modern conspiracy theories, is that it goes back to the Salem witch trials. I would have thought there was more to it than that. There may have been some Collins involvement in the 1600s Scottish witch panic as well, but that's about all I got. But the the conclusion is that this this idea of the Collins family being associated with witchcraft, uh, that's not new. That's not actually just a delusion on John Todd's part. So John Todd is like adamant that what like one central to like the claims that he's making is that witchcraft and the occult is the indigenous religion of Scotland and that it was Scottish people who brought witchcraft to the United States. And I just want to say that this makes me extremely happy because now you, Sadie, as a Scottish person can understand what <laughs> it feels like to be blamed for all of the evils in the world. <laughs> yeah. I know that was a little bit of a, of a sidetrack, but I wanted to dig into the origins of that myth before we actually tell you who John Todd, a.k.a. Lance Collins, a.k.a. Chris Sarayan Collins, a.k.a. Christopher Collins, 
was because his entire story rests on this Collins myth. So, okay. Starting with his actual life, we start in 1949. He was born on May 19th, 1949, probably. And Gavi found a lawsuit on case text that is clearly him, clearly the same guy. And his name on that lawsuit is Chris Sarayan Collins, S-A-R-A-Y-A-N, Collins with a K, K-O-L-L-Y-N-S. But... I have no idea if that was his birth name. I was not able to find a birth or death certificate, probably because he went by so many different names and I have no clue which one was his legal name at birth. So I found several documents and all of them are supposedly related to him, but all of them have different names. Like, And that just complicates researching things. Like this is the, that he says, I, I don't know whether this is true or not. That So he says he was born into the, the Collins witchcraft family, but that they changed their name to Todd uh, like a few generations ago because they were having all of this notoriety because every, I guess like it's just assumed that if your name is Collins, you're involved in witchcraft. Right. But also, yeah, but like, so they changed their name. They're like, oh no, people know we're witches. We better change our name. We're going to be Todd now. But also he goes on to claim that he had a mother who lived in Ohio and a foster mother who lived in California and who was in film and TV production, which is a very dubious claim because he says that his foster mother was one of the producers of the Satanic Panic's favorite television show, Bewitched. Right. His claim was that he was heir to the leadership position in the Collins family. And by the time he was 18, he had inherited that position of the Grand Druid High Priest. So it makes sense that it kind of makes sense that they would send him off to a foster family as a child, either for his safety or to teach him more about the ways of witchcraft or something. But he specifically claims that this foster mother was a producer on Bewitched. So were you able to narrow that down? Like, did you get the names of anyone who was a producer on Bewitched? So I looked up Bewitched on Wikipedia, easy enough to do, and it told me that the show's producers were all men. So I, okay. yeah, so I, yeah, yeah. So I went to IMDB to see if I could find like a more detailed witch, be, uh, a more detailed list, excuse me. And, you know, because, you know, he says, I'm trying to give this guy the benefit of the doubt, trying to cast as wide a net as We're possible. We're right back to Paul Sand territory, y'all. Right. Yeah. So I looked up trying to see if there's any woman who ever produced or directed any episodes of the show Bewitch. And the only woman who I was able to find who, directed or produced any episodes of the show Bewitched was a woman named Ida Lupino, who was actually a very well-known actress and filmmaker as it, like she starred in some highly successful movies like Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. She worked with Humphrey Bogart a lot, um, like in multiple films. She's regarded as one of really the, the trailblazers for female filmmakers in Hollywood. She directed hundreds of episodes of various television shows, including like Twilight Zone, Columbo, Gilligan's Island. And in 1965, she got to direct an episode of Bewitched titled A is for Aardvark. Okay, so if John Todd was fudging the truth just a little bit and his foster mother wasn't one of the main producers for Bewitched, but she was somebody who produced one episode, Ida Lupino is kind of the only option. Yes. Any idea if she had a foster son between the years of 1949 and 1966-ish? I looked into that and, and I... 
I didn't find anything. Not that I'm aware of. I also think that like if John Todd were raised by Ida Lupino, you know, one of the most important filmmakers in the history of Hollywood, you know, as as far as as trailblazers for female film, is somebody who really broke through a gender barrier and who was at one point a major movie star. Him saying, "Yeah, my my foster mother was a producer on Bewitched." Like that's kind of burying the lead, isn't it? Yeah, unless your goal is to confirm for someone who already believes that Bewitched was a satanic plot to normalize witchcraft that they are correct. Yeah, like just saying I was raised in witchcraft and the fo- and my foster mother was a producer on Bewitched. It like it's just blowing smoke up Jack Chick's ass because he's the one saying, "Oh, Bewitched is put on by the Satanists." And John Todd's like, "I know that. I'm a Satanist and my foster mother was the one doing." Yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you would say if you really wanted to impress Jack Chick and get named in his comic books and be his best friend and some other stuff we're going to talk about later. Yeah. Um, None of this makes sense. So, okay. So, so far we've got, we've got the claim about being born into the Collins family, which we can really neither prove nor disprove because I have no idea what his birth name was, but the Collins family is a real myth that has been around for quite a while. So that's a, you know, a half a point. And then we've got the bewitched claim that he's making, which is kind of a no-go. So 1968 is the first time that we get real records of John Todd. According to Christianity Today, he was arrested in Columbus, Ohio for malicious destruction of property. And that's where we really start to get him on paper. That's where his story really starts. Yeah. So one of our one of our major sources for this uh, story is the magazine Christianity Today, um, which is a, a publication. It was started by Billy Graham. So it is generally going to be seen as like from a mainstream evangelical perspective it's going to be like a reputable publication whether or not you think mainstream evangelical perspective is makes it reputable or not is aside the point but basically they're not going to just like make up and fabricate evidence they're going to no, use this evidence is a, that, yeah th- their their viewpoint may or may not be something that you agree with but the actual evidence that they prevent but that, that they present should be reputable this is a real magazine like it's not like a blog no, it's and it, yeah. It's, this Christianity Today article, uh, the title of the article is "Legends of John Todd." It is behind a paywall, so thank you, patrons, for supporting our show. But this article was extremely helpful for us. So now we're in 1968, and this John Todd story is taking off. In 1968, after this destruction of property charge in Ohio, he emerges in Phoenix, Arizona. At this time, he's married. He's 19 years old. He's married to a woman named Linda, who has a four-year-old child. He's presenting himself as a oneness Pentecostal preacher trying to start a church. He buddies up with this Pentecostal preacher named John Outlaw. John Todd tells John Outlaw that he was a witch in the Navy, but that he converted to Christianity in California. I'm not sure if he was upfront with his age, because I feel like that's the only part of his story that wouldn't track for John Outlaw. Like, did he tell Outlaw that he was 19 and already married and had been in the Navy and gotten out of the Navy and then converted converted to Christianity and then become a preacher? Because that seems like a lot to get done by the time you're 19. Or maybe he let Outlaw assume he was a few years older. Either way, we know that John Todd said, Hey, used to be a witch. This is my wife. I converted in California, but I want you to re-baptize me. Huh. 
Todd told Outlaw that he had originally been baptized in California in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but he wanted to be rebaptized in the name of Jesus alone, which is a, it's a oneness Pentecostal thing. They believe in the Trinity, but they believe that all three persons of God are effectively Jesus. I bring this up because it's a niche theological thing and that he would know about this kind of niche theological thing when he was 19 years old in 1968 is going to become significant as we move through the years here. Yeah, one of the claims that he makes later is that like he was raised in witchcraft, but he attended Sunday school by accident at some point. So I like I don't know if you go to like Sunday school once or twice by accident and then you pick up this like No, I went to Sunday school for 20 years and I was not familiar with this doctrine until I looked it up for this episode. But but you weren't raised Pente- like maybe if you went to Pentecostal Sunday school by accident you'd know about it but like that, that seems like a stretch. I don't know. I mean it it seems like I mean being like a a preacher at 19 he was probably raised within the evangelical movement at some point. <laughs> In, in some sort of way. Or familiar with it somehow. Anyway, we're, we're going to get to this as we tell more of his story. Still in 1968, John Todd and his wife Linda split up. They told Outlaw that God had given them a vision, a prophetic vision to split up and seek other mates. Outlaw was not a fan of this but decided to be supportive of John Todd's ministry anyway and got him a job as a busboy in a Mexican restaurant. Wow. So he goes from preacher to Mexican restaurant busboy. But shortly after getting that job, John Todd just disappears off of Outlaw's radar and Outlaw doesn't hear from from him again for several years. So while he is absent and not in communication with Outlaw, that brings us to 1969. Gavi, will you tell us what happened to John Todd in 1969? So if you can, just tell us like what he claims to have happened and also what we know is true. Yeah, so th- this is basically going off of the story that John Todd told in his uh, in, in his speech that, that we found. And this is where things get like hella weird. So central to John Todd's claim is that he was brought up in witchcraft family he did not know that witchcraft was evil he just thought that it was like a normal religion like any other like you know he's like i thought it was just like a a religion like baptist you know instead of going to church we go to to i guess like witchcraft temple or something but they would like say spells and stuff you know and that was their version of praying because he was he was a wizard and so because he was a wizard like a part of the witchcraft clergy he was a wizard he would be exempt from the draft like the the US selective service draft but he decided to join the army anyway because it would allow him to establish witches covens in the military so he joins the army in 1969 and he says by the time he left the army there was a witches coven on every military base in every branch of the U.S. military. So Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, all of them. He says that he was a Green Beret in Vietnam for a while, but then he gets stationed in Stuttgart, uh, West Germany, for unknown reasons. Don't know why you'd put your like a highly decorated Green Beret killing machine guy behind a desk in Germany uh, when you've got Charlie to fight. But th- that's what he says happens. And this is where the story goes completely off the rails he claims that one night he is drinking and using drugs as you do if you're involved in witchcraft and he shoots and kills his commanding officer in a two-hour firefight 
he tries to make a plea deal for 30 years in prison, but this deal, for whatever reason, is not accepted by the judge. And so he manages to get a, f- a message to his family telling them what's happened to him, that he is basically that he's being imprisoned for killing a guy uh, so that they can pray some magic spells to get him out. And according to Todd, a few days later, his cell is opened and he finds a U.S. senator, a U.S. congressman and the general of the army telling him that he is free to go and that he has been honorably discharged and that any records of his wrongdoing have been destroyed. And this is important because the claim about being raised in the Collins witchcraft family and this claim about his supposed honorable discharge from the military are the two big claims that John Todd leans on to substantiate his story, to substantiate his claims about everything else he's going to say about Satanism and Illuminati and conspiracy and all of this stuff. He uses these stories to prove his what he's saying is true and to prove how powerful and connected his witchcraft family supposedly was then it gets even weirder of course (laughs) yeah of course like this story gets even more unbelievable so john according to john todd he goes home to ohio to see his birth mother not his foster mother his birth mother and he is apparently still clueless about the size of the witchcraft conspiracy despite the fact that he was set free by a senator a congressman and the general of the army and she has to explain to him that lawmakers and generals didn't set him free because uh, everyone at home was casting spells to get him free or whatever. Uh, They set him free because they belong to the Illuminati. And he, John Todd, because he is a member of the Collins family, is somebody that they have to protect. And and him and his standing are like the number one priority for the Illuminati going forward. So just to be clear, he claims that both his birth mother and his foster mother are high-level witches, but his birth mother was the grand priestess or something, which is what gave him the birthright to the grand druid high priest position. Uh, I I just want to say here, this is starting to kind of seem like a person who just really needs to believe that they are special and unique. Yeah, I mean, it's you know how when Harry Potter finds out that his invisibility cloak is actually one of the Deathly Hallows? Yes. It's it's very much that vibe, except for that's a fantasy. Well, this is also a fantasy (laughs) story. (laughs) So in in John Todd's telling, uh, he he leaves the military, he goes to see his mother and then what? Yeah, and so he he gets sent to New York City to learn witchcraft, to learn about witchcraft and and being a wizard from a professor at Columbia University who is also a major player in the Illuminati. And this is where he learns about the whole conspiracy uh, with the Rothschilds and the every, and everybody, you know, and, and lizard people or whatever. And so I have two side notes here. You keep saying wizard. Is that the term that? John Todd used? He used it. So we found a speech, uh, uh, like the audio recording of a speech. He calls himself a wizard on several times. So that's that's weird to me because as far as I'm aware, and maybe we have listeners who can straighten this out for me, as far as I know, the term for a male practitioner of witchcraft is witch. And they don't use... Uh, trigger warning which swear words coming up they don't use the term warlock that is apparently a major major insult in this world as far as i know male witches use the term witch like in this the guy that was introducing him in a speech that i that i heard called him like the grand warlock 
or something yeah, like that. Like he's a like, big actually, insult. I'm, I'm confident of that one. Well, he says that the actual uh, term is wizard. Like he's like, it's it's not warlock, it's wizard. So that's, that's I, I uh, maybe somebody can can write in and straighten me out about that. But number two, yeah, I don't. This guy that he was sent to learn witchcraft from in New York, who's supposedly a professor at Columbia, he names dro- he name drops this guy. The name that he gives is Raymond Buckland, and he says that he is the head of anthropology at Columbia University. Uh, the quote from John Todd's audio recording that we heard, Columbia, quote, likes to say that he never existed. Interesting. This is interesting because I looked up this guy, Raymond Buckland. He's a real guy. He was a very prominent writer on Wicca and the occult. His books are definitely something that someone who had an interest in the occult, someone who frequented or worked at occult stores would have read. He wrote um, a book, I believe, called The Pocket Guide to Magic, you know, in a, Magic with a CK. One of those guys. Raymond Buckland was a high priest in two established Wiccan traditions, like Wiccan churches, like how Church of Satan functions like a church like that. Not He wasn't a solo practitioner. He was involved in actual Wiccan churches. Uh, Buckland had a museum of witchcraft and magic in Bayshore, New York, and he did one lecture at Long Island University for about 20 students in 1971 as part of a cross-cultural communication seminar consisting of 10 lectures by different practitioners of witchcraft, tarot, palmistry, astrology, etc. One lecture, which was not at Columbia. Raymond Buckland was never a university professor. His career was actually flight attendant and then later occult museum operator. So John Todd very much has a knack for exaggerating things as our listeners will no doubt find out very soon. But this supposed um, Satan internship with Raymond Buckland is where he learns about uh, the fact that all of these gods that witches uh, claim to worship are actually Satan in disguise. And he also learns about all the Jews that run the world and how they do it, which is not even surprising anymore. Well, see, here's the funny thing is that these conspiracy theories always lean really hard into the like Jews run the world thing. But then when it comes to saying outright that Jews run the world, they'll say, no, that's not accurate. And that's what makes John Todd's personal little conspiracy bubble interesting, because it's like normal whatever anti-Semitism, but there's a little extra spice to it because he will outright say, oh, yeah, the Jews run the world. But it's also it's not in the way that I have seen that claim made before. Like it's all about the money and controlling the banks and so on, because he's got this interesting little Christian flair to it where it's about controlling the banks is just one part of their grand plot. And these aren't real Jews. They're satanic Jews. Like he was raised to think that witchcraft was a religion that did not worship Satan. It was the religion of the Illuminati, but then Buckland taught him how Satan was the actual hidden god of this religion. The terminology that they'll use is that they'll say the Rothschilds are Jewish by descent, but they do not practice the Jewish religion. They now worship at the altar of Zionism and the Illuminati. So that's what you hear people saying. So John Todd is using that general line of thinking, but he's skipping over the Zionism and going straight to the Satanism. So so in his speech, there's a Q&A section at the end where somebody asks him about Israel. And this is a speech from like 1979. And he essentially says Israel was formed to be part of like some sort of pawn in the Illuminati's plot to form the new world order and that Israel will be the flashpoint for the upcoming world war that will end in the Illuminati consolidating their control of 
the earth. So that's that's basically what his his whole point is. He's like they made Israel to be a source of conflict. Um, the Illuminati made Israel to be a source of conflict, and then when the conflict really you know breaks out and it, it becomes worldwide, the Illuminati will use that as cover to take over. So this is this is weird to me because of what I know about the general beliefs about the state of Israel in fundamentalist and evangelical Christianity at the time. Because in, in the 1970s and even still, a lot of evangelical Christians believe that Israel as a nation has to stay intact and then some prophecies with the temple have to be fulfilled so that Jesus can come back in the rapture. So this is unusual to me because I don't know how well John Todd's statements about Israel fit with the prevalent thought at the time. Like if you read the book, uh, 77 Reasons That Jesus Is Coming Back in 1977, I haven't looked at that book in years, but I have read it and I'm pretty sure that this doesn't fit with that book. I wonder if he was couching his message to be palatable to a strongly Zionist Christian audience. The other thing that he's doing, though, is he's also accusing prominent fundamentalists and evangelicals of being part of the Illuminati conspiracy. Yeah, he doesn't mind rocking a boat. <laughs> no, he like he, he doesn't. I think that John Todd's audience isn't really mainstream evangelicals. It's the fringe people that are sort of peppered in with them. Well, like the IFB, who already hate Billy Graham, who already hate Jerry Falwell, who are already stepping away from that more mainstream evangelicalism and also stepping away from the jesus movement yeah so i mean it's it's fringe people that he's going for it's it's obviously a grift um as we will also discuss later but around this time he alleges that he basically he became grand he became like a druid priest and that he was the personal wizard to the kennedy family and he got to meet jfk on his yacht uh spoiler warning jfk isn't actually dead according to john todd according Um, to john todd So he said that he met JFK on his yacht after the supposed assassination. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Like I, I, so I know that you and your dad uh, loved going into JFK conspiracy theories. Um, so if you want to look into that in the future, if you want to see uh, if if this guy's telling the truth about this, then you can. There's a decent chance that he might be lying about that because Christianity Today also got a hold of his army records. The article that we found in Christianity Today, they cited his army records, which he had been telling his audiences that the army records didn't exist. But maybe he said that so that they wouldn't go looking for them. Oh, th- okay. That's great that we have those. So- Between 1969 and 1972, John Todd claimed that he went into the military, got into a shootout with his commanding officer, killed him, got an honorable discharge because his family was in the Illuminati, went for a Satan internship with Raymond Buckland, and got initiated into like the full knowledge of how the Illuminati works. That's what he claimed was going on between 1969 and 1972. So what do his army records show? Do they confirm that in any way? So I'm going to read a pull quote from the article now. Um, And it says, Todd was given psychiatric examinations twice while in the army. His records indicate an evidence of an unstable home background and possible brain damage as a result of beatings. Oof. The second examination, yeah, oof. The second examination a few months later labeled his malady as emotional instability with pseudological fan. Uh, what is that word? Fant- fantasia. Fantastica. Fan- okay, 
uh, Pseudological Fantastica. Todd finds it difficult to tell reality from fantasy, says a medical report. It spoke of homicidal threats he had made on another, false suicide reports, and a severe personality disturbance. It saw no hope for change and recommended Todd's discharge. So, summary. John Todd was never a Green Beret. He was he never set foot in Vietnam. He was never exempt from the draft due to being an wizard. Uh, he he was just some weirdo that the army decided that they could not in good conscience send into combat. So they parked him at a desk in Germany until he caused them so many problems that they realized he was actually a lunatic and decided to discharge him. And also he was never in the Navy because when yeah. he met John Outlaw in 1968, he said that he had just gotten out of the Navy. Yeah. The, uh, no, there were no records of him being in the Navy. Like when would he have been in the, like he was, he was born in 1949. So he turned 18 in 1967 um and he's 19 when he joins the army in 1969 so like what is like is he gonna go into the navy for one year and then somehow get out of the navy and then join the army if he got discharged from the navy for some reason only like he, he'd been in the navy for one year then they probably wouldn't have taken him in the army to begin with so this is why i'm wondering if he told outlaw that he was older than 19 i'm, I'm just spitballing because he he only told this one specific lie about having been in the navy to one group of people in 1968 and then after he actually went into the army for real he told a different lie to a different much larger group of people throughout the 70s it's really telling, though, that those records say he's incapable of telling fantasy from reality. He also said in a transcript of a speech that I have that he enlisted in 1968, not 1969, which is just a flat out lie based on those records. So so here's a question. While we're talking about what he claimed to do in those years between 69 and 72, am I remembering this wrong or did he at one point say he personally knew Charles Manson? Yes, I forgot about that part. Yes, he like he did. He he said he knew Charles Manson and he was thinking about getting involved with the the Charles Manson family, but then he decided not to after or I think like what what happened to Sharon Tate scared him off or so I don't I don't know. He Right, there's something about really Sharon Tate is involved in his story somehow. Yeah, he just like he just offhandedly mentions that he was that he knew Charles Manson. Um his, his story changes so much. Interestingly though, some of his claims about rock music and the Beatles are identical to Manson's claims about rock music. Like he claims that rock music is an Illuminati plot to get young people interested in witchcraft and that the song Helter Skelter contains a coded message about a new world order takeover. So in one of his speeches, Todd claims that at some point between 1968 and 1972, he personally delivered $8 million to Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel to start the the Maranatha Music Ministry and to make Christian rock a thing. Um, he, In other speeches, he claimed that he delivered it to the choir director, which is going to be important later. He also claimed that several other big name pe- preachers were paid off. And he will name not just the name of the preacher, but like exact figures, like $35 million or $50 million. I cannot say for sure whether John Todd started the idea of number one. So two different ideas that I heard growing up. Rock music records physically containing demons that are physically brought into your home when you purchase these rock records. And number two, 
Christian rock music being just as demonic as any other rock music. I can't confirm that he started this, but I can at least say for sure that he was an early adopter of this idea. What's nuts to me is that, like all of the stuff that John Todd is personally involved in. Like he's out here, he's hand delivering checks to pastors to make Christian rock music. And then he's also, and we'll get to this later, um, apparently overseeing all of the drug trade in the state of Texas. And also he is the personal wizard to John F. Kennedy, who isn't actually dead, I guess. You know, like I'm just like one of the qualities of a good leader is learning how to delegate responsibility. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I get like I get that it's a big like an eight million dollar check. That's very important. But maybe get the guy under you to do that. Maybe get like your your second in command guy. Like get an assistant to the assistant Satan manager. Yeah, exactly. Like the Illuminati, they've got fingers in a lot of pies. There's got to be like somebody who works for you who works for like a courier company. You know, like you, like you couldn't FedEx, I guess it'd be like not FedEx. It would be Illuminex. Uh, You would think that they would have private companies if they are like controlling the world. Yeah. It could be like an LLC. Like you run, you run the (laughs) Illuminati through Illuminati LLC. I mean, I feel like I would structure the Illuminati as an S corp. Yeah. I'm just just saying, I think, I think um, an LLC is going to get hairy because an LLC only provides for owners and employees. And I feel like structuring it as a corporation would probably be better for taxes, but I guess the Illuminati doesn't really pay taxes. Well, technically, they're a re- like the witchcraft, you know, it's a religion, so they could be a 501c3. They could, but the Illuminati couldn't, I don't think, because that you have to you have to be a nonprofit for that. Yeah, but they're like, they're, aren't they a nonprofit? I don't know. Like nonprofit doesn't mean that like the people like you can have a nonprofit and the people at the top can be like raking it in. That's true. You know what? You would know this more than you know about like business law and stuff and like business math and accounting. Yeah, a private company you, yeah. means that you don't have shareholders. A nonprofit, um, you have to have a specific charitable mission. They have a charitable mission, which is the new install the new world order okay i guess i mean since the illuminati (laughs) runs the government they could probably get that through but as far as like all of this stuff that john todd was doing you have to remember that he said he was doing all of this between 1967 when he turned 18 and 1980 1972 when he converted to christianity so less than five years and that includes his time in the army and all of that as well so he was definitely a busy guy yeah, so J- John Todd gets into the Illuminati as a, like he's 19, 20, 21. He's in there for like a year or two. But because he's a Collins, he's immediately promoted to being like one of the most important of the Illuminati. This is a massive organization with allegedly millions of members. Somebody's got to be watching this. Like, like I'm out here busting my ass for the Illuminati in the bribery department. I, you know, I put my time in. I, I've been setting, I've been setting up orgies for public officials all over the tri-state area. You know, like, you know how much effort that takes, like coordinating an orgy with e- like everybody's schedule. I've been handing out cash for years. And this John Todd kid, he comes in, he rocks up. He's like, Bam. And suddenly he's in charge of all the drug trade in the state. Like, you know, he gets to go out and see JFK on the yacht. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, the thing is that this John Todd kid is is special. He did his first spell at eight and he was chosen for the priesthood at 13. It's his birthright. So just like how Charles is going to be king of England one day, John Todd was born to be the grand druid high priest of the Illuminati. It just is what it is. So he's the top wizard. Of, have we gotten to the part where he's like in charge of all of the drug trade in Texas at this point? Yes. So just to sum up, because we're about to hit the big turning point of this story. And if you're confused listening to this, none of this makes any f***ing sense. It it does. Uh, It does not make sense. The reason why we're (laughs) summarizing this like ridiculous story is because basically this is the story that this guy tells to Jack Chick and Jack Chick prints it in his comics like this is 100% true and then uses this story to start the satanic panic. And we have a lot more documentation for the things that he claims and the things that he did do from here on out. So it is maybe going to start making more sense. So let me sum up what we've learned so far. Cool. The Collins family is a is the the massive witchcraft family that brought witchcraft to the United States. John Todd, John Todd Collins, Lance Collins, Chris Ryan Collins, Christopher Collins, whatever his name is, was born and raised in this group of witches. He did not know about the whole Illuminati thing. According to his story, he went into the army, killed somebody, got an honorable discharge because of the power of the Illuminati, trained under Raymond Buckland, and then became the head of all the drug trade in Texas and was doing a whole lot of other satanic stuff in general. He leaves out the part of his story, of course, where he claimed to be a Christian convert way back in 1968 when he tells his official story. 1972 is the big turning point in his version of the story. In an audio recording we heard, John Todd says that Saturday, September 4th, 1972, was the day that a Baptist preacher came into the occult store where he was working, read scriptures to him, and ordered the demons inside him to be silent and to stop providing him with drugs. So a quick TW here. We are going to be talking about injection drugs here for a minute, specifically heroin and meth. We're going to move on pretty quickly. Todd says that he was on speed at the time, but that it was hard to find in these. And he was in San Antonio at this time, right? He was he was uh, in San Antonio. And according to him, the Illuminati positioned him as the grand wizard of all of the drug trade in Texas. And he was uh, on speed at the time, but it was hard to find in the San Antonio area because most people in this in 1972 were doing heroin and LSD and speed wasn't as popular. He had a big shipment supposed to come in from Mexico on that weekend, Labor Day weekend of 1972. According to his story, the witches had paid off the border guards and the shipment was supposed to come through no problem. But that same night... Uh, the government got an anonymous tip about a large number of undocumented people who were planning on coming across the Mexico-Texas border. So the border guards that would normally have been at the checkpoint went to deal with that issue. And backup guys were at the checkpoint, not the ones who had been paid off. And the massive shipment of methamphetamine got seized. So John Todd had done all his drugs knowing that this shipment was coming in that night. So he went into heavy withdrawal. He went around town looking for drugs but couldn't find any. And instead, he ended up in a movie theater where the movie playing happened to be The Cross and the Switchblade, well-known Christian film. On the way out of the theater, someone handed him the chick track by the title Bewitched. You, This is a chick track that we've talked about. Yes. <laughs> th- this is the one that gave you nightmares. This is the one with Satan's boardroom. 
This is the one with Jello Ashley. I I think you're right. I think this is the Jello Ashley is, one. No, no, I'm remembering Satan's boardroom because Satan's like they they were talking about Bewitched, how Bewitched was a satanic plot, and then it was Jello Ashley. They were trying to get Jello Ashley into the the the. Uh, into Satanism, into because, the occult. Yeah, because Jello Ashley had done over 60 trips of acid mixed with speed. Dun, dun, dun. So here's the thing, though, is you want to know who did more drugs, allegedly, than Jello Ashley is John Todd. Uh, one of the, uh, this, is, this is just a, a bit of an aside, but he said in his speech that he was mainlining $150 worth of crystal meth every day. And this was in 1972. So in 2022 money, he is mainlining $1,000 worth of crystal meth every day. Were you able to find how much in grams is $150 worth in 1972? No. So the best I could do is a website about drug addiction that claims that an ounce of high-grade methamphetamine in the state of Texas currently, not in 1972, currently costs... Uh, like one ounce is $324. So since I have not, nor do I ever plan to use methamphetamine in the future, I have no idea whether or not this is accurate. And I also have no idea whether or not today's prices are the same as they were 50 years ago. But basically, like if that's true, and like the conversion is right, that's 3.1 ounces of methamphetamine per day is how much $150 gets you. So that's a little bit less than one and a half pounds of meth mm-hmm. per week. Pounds. See, this, like, something is off here because I don't believe you use an ounce of meth a day. I looked it up. One website that I found characterized heavy use as being two grams a day. If we put it in terms that maybe more people would be familiar with, we know that a pack a day smoker is a heavy smoker and a two pack a day smoker is a really heavy smoker. So if a heavy meth user uses two ounces or two grams per day, I don't think it's plausible that he was using 3.1 ounces per day. So maybe it cost more per gram adjusted for inflation in the 1970s like maybe it was relatively more expensive mm. then or maybe john todd is just lying or also he was talking about how hard it was to get it so you know he right so maybe like 150 dollars then wouldn't buy you 3.1 ounces maybe it would buy you two grams per day yeah i, yeah, I don't know that's Regardless, uh, if there is one part of the story that I do believe, it's that I think that John Todd probably did do a lot of crystal meth. Uh, <laughs> I, which is, I agree. Yeah. This is the, the fact that he did a lot of meth is, is very plausible. I think he was either lying about the amount or there's something we're missing with the conversion table. So anyway. A Baptist preacher came to the occult store where he was working, told his demons not to supply him with any more drugs. He gets the news that this shipment didn't go through. He's upset about it. He goes to a movie theater. He sees the cross and the switchblade. And on the way out of the movie theater, he's given this chick tract bewitched. He reads it, but ends up throwing the track away. He wanted to talk to a pastor about what he had read in that chick tract, but he couldn't think of any pastor in the area who wasn't on the Illuminati payroll because he'd been delivering millions of dollars to all of them, remember? So while still in withdrawal, he found this former strip club turned Christian coffee shop and he went in there at like 3 a.m. There was a guy who happened to be working there in the middle of the night who called his pastor 
And the pastor said, we've heard this guy's name, Lance Collins, which is John Todd's alleged supposed witch name. We've heard of this guy, Lance Collins. We've been fasting and praying for him to get saved for weeks. I'm actually in a prayer meeting, an all night prayer meeting right now with a bunch of church members who have been fasting and praying for him to get saved. Go ahead and witness to him and we will keep praying while you do that, that God will give you the right words to say. So that weekend in 1972 is when John Todd claims to have converted to Christianity. Now, of course, people who have been listening carefully will recall that he was baptized one this Pentecostal in 1968 after his first alleged conversion to Christianity. But he doesn't tell that part of his story from 1978. He tells this part of his story from 1972 when he talks about his conversion. He tells this part about being in withdrawal, going to the movie theater, ending up at the coffee shop, getting saved, with a lot of consistency. But he usually leaves out the next few years. And there's a really good reason why he leaves out the next few years. So I'm going to tell you about why he tended to not tell anything from 1973 to 1977 when we get back from taking up the offering. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back. We are only, I mean, we are like halfway through this crazy conspiracy theory guy life story. I don't know what's going on with him. Uh, so he's yeah. claimed to be converted. To Christianity. Yeah. What What's he do next? He's he, is he going out and he's going to preach the gospel and talk about how saved he is? In late 1972 or early 1973, he kind of disappears from the San Antonio area. He doesn't do anything specific with his newfound Christianity. I guess they found somebody else to run all the drug trade in Texas. I guess, yeah, I guess his assistant was like, oh, thank goodness, I finally have something to do because I've just been sitting on my ass for five years because John Todd does everything himself. So he leaves San Antonio and he the next place he pops back up is in Phoenix. So he's back in Phoenix. John Outlaw, the pastor who baptized him in 1968, apparently wasn't aware of this whole 
a new Satanism story that he's concocted since the last time he was in Phoenix. Because the last time he was in Phoenix, his story was just like, oh yeah, I was a witch while I was in the Navy. No big deal. But John Outlaw introduces him to Ken Long, who at the time was a Pentecostal minister and the owner of another Christian coffee house and heavily involved with the Jesus movement. So John Todd gets a job in Phoenix at Ken Long's Jesus Coffee House. Reportedly, according to Long, uh, speaking to Christianity Today, John Todd performed healing miracles at this coffee house. He healed the leg of a man who was unable to walk, specifically. Wow. So he was popular at this Jesus Coffee House in 1972, but it came to light in 1973 that through his job at the Christian Coffee House, he was recruiting teenage girls, both for sex and also for a witchcraft coven. One would assume that these things are generally frowned upon at a Jesus coffee house. So to Ken Long's credit, he did seem pretty upset about the molestation of teenage girls and the witchcraft. I think the stereotype here is that he would be more mad about the witchcraft, but that doesn't (laughs) seem to be the case here. So props to Ken Long, I guess. Either that or he'd like blame the molestation on the witchcraft and say, oh, John Todd, that man's got demons inside him. If we fix him with Jesus, then he can keep working at the coffee house. No problem. Well, he does get kicked out of the Jesus coffee house. Good. In 1973, because he was apparently waffling between witchcraft and Christianity and also between whether he wanted to be a pervert or not. But 1973 was a big year for this guy. I do not know how he got so much done in a year, probably the same way that he delivered millions of dollars to people and also was the drug kingpin of Texas and JFK's personal wizard and all that. So in August 1973, he marries Sharon Garver, who was probably someone he met through the Christian Coffee House thing, which leads me to question, why would she get married to him considering everything he was doing at the Jesus Coffee House? Maybe he assured her that he had been fixed by Jesus like Josh Duggar. I'm kind of guessing that that was the case. So in 1973, shortly after he married Sharon Garver, he gave his testimony on a local Christian TV program in Phoenix. And this is the first time he publicly tells his whole story about how he was born into witchcraft and, and the army and the Kennedy's personal wizard and and all of this, all of these claims that he repeats with so much consistency through the years. The first time we hear most of those is at this local television program in 1973 in Phoenix. So after making quite a splash on local television in Phoenix, he was invited onto Doug Clark's show called Amazing Prophecies on FBN, the Faith Broadcasting Network, which was an early Christian TV station in Los Angeles. So like TBN before there was TBN. I did make a serious effort to try to turn up John Todd's episode of Amazing Prophecies. I couldn't find it. So I looked for any episode of Amazing Prophecies and I just could not find it on YouTube. So I, I looked. Sorry, I tried on that one. <laughs> if you've got the archive of Amazing Prophecies, uh, please let let us know if you can find one with John Todd on it, because we would be highly interested in in procuring that footage. There are plenty of John Todd speeches on YouTube, which is a fun rabbit hole if any of you are bored after this episode. <laughs> yeah. So after being so when he was on Amazing Prophecies, he got some mainstream recognition in the Christian world because that's like a major Christian television station. So John and Sharon moved to Santa Ana, California to be closer to this whole Jesus movement thing. He met Jack Chick in person because of Amazing Prophecies. And Jack Chick published 
the first of two comic books inspired by his story, which is The Broken Cross, which is the comic book that we reviewed on the Beefy Boys for Jesus episode. And that was a quick turnaround. Chick may have published that comic book either immediately, very quickly after they met in person or even before they met in person, just based on what he said on The Amazing Prophecies show. I'm not sure because I can't turn up the recording of The Amazing Prophecies show. So this would have been, so Jack Chick probably saw this guy and heard his story. and He's like, I'm going to base a comic book off of that. Uh, This guy says it's true. That's a source and it's on this Christian network. They're not going to lie on the Christian TV network. Yeah. Jack Chick was like John Todd's biggest fan from the day he heard about him. And he's also, John Todd is also a success story for Jack Chick in a way because it was the Bewitched comic that originally, that, that played a part in his conversion. This I mean, this is so nuts. It's like, it's like a snake eating its own tail. It's such like circular <laughs> logic. John Todd finds yes. about, like, finds out about this conspiracy from Jack Chick, and then Jack Chick finds out about the same conspiracy from John Todd, and then writes, like, Ah, So John Todd was an overnight hit, not just with Jack Chick, but in the Christian community in Santa Ana in general. However, it very quickly turned sour because around Christmas of 1973, it came out that John had been seducing teenage girls and trying to get them into a witchcraft coven. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Man, he is is such like a specific MO. (laughs) Yes. He's like... So he got kicked out of Melody Land Christian Center in California, and Doug Clark, the host of Amazing Prophecies, denounced him publicly on air. I should note, when I say it came out that, what I mean is that Sharon, his wife, told on him. She also said that he had been using drugs throughout their marriage. She also alleged that he impregnated her teenage sister, and Sharon's teenage sister has the same story. Why do they keep giving these people chances, man? Well, John Todd, these people in California didn't know that he had done the same thing a year before in Phoenix. That's right. I keep forgetting that like all this stuff is pre-Google. They couldn't Google him. Yeah. And that's how he scammed all of these people. Wow. So we can finally move on to 1974, which was a much less eventful year for John Todd. In December of 73, he got run out of Melody Land Christian Center because of all this stuff, and he ditched his second wife, Sharon, in California. So in 1974, he pops back up in Dayton, Ohio. He opened an occult bookstore in Dayton, Ohio called The Witch's Cauldron. So in Dayton, he was teaching classes on spells and other types of witchy stuff. He was running this bookstore. He was also recruiting for a Wiccan coven, but a legitimate one this time. They had a charter through Gavin Frost's Church and School of Wicca. So he wasn't, he wasn't just like a, like a lone wolf here. He was affiliated with a real Wiccan group with rules and regulations and philosophies and things. At some point in this period from 1974-ish, he met Sheila Spoonmore, who he was married to. It's unclear how long they were married. It's unclear what happened to her. But he's there in Dayton, Ohio, we know, for two years, running this bookstore, The Witch's Cauldron, and recruiting for this coven through Gavin Frost's Church and School of Wicca. 
I think I know how this ends. Let me guess. Does he try to recruit teenage girls for uh, sexual uh, rituals or something? How did you possibly guess? I don't know, man. It's kind of like this guy has a pattern where he keeps doing the same thing over and over just in different town. like And, and in different th- religions, I guess. Yeah. Like th- this, it's just so like, like I was saying, like bef- pre-Google, man. Before Google, it used to be you could just run a scam, and when you got caught, you could skip town and then run the same scan two towns over, and you'd be fine as long as nobody from your old town happened to come by and notice. God, ah, like women were really out here getting married to some weird witchy dude that they couldn't even Google first. Yeah, it it sounds terrifying. The world was nuts back in the day, man. Like, I can't can't uh, imagine. (laughs) So as you correctly predicted, in 1976, John Todd was accused of sexually abusing teenage girls during initiation rites into his coven. Uh, There was a police investigation. He ended up pleading guilty to contributing to the unruliness of a minor, and he was sentenced to six months in county. So, A of all, this six-month sentence does not sit right with me. No. Don't like that. As as it shouldn't, no. But the the charter for his Wiccan coven was revoked. So, the Wiccan leaders, Gavin Frost and another guy whose name I can't recall, I'm sorry, the the Wiccan leaders of the, the people he had his charter for his coven through did an investigation, revoked his charter once again, making the Satanists look good. Well, not okay, not technically Satanists, neo-pagans, but making the neo-pagans look good. Wow. I don't like any of this except for the neo-pagan people doing what IFP churches should learn how to do. Also, though, this doesn't fit with his story about the witches running every police department in the country. Like, he claimed that while he was in the military, he killed a commanding officer and got away with it because of the power that witches have in the government and military. He influenced Jack Chick's comic, because you remember in the Chick comic, the state troopers are all really witches, and that's how people are getting away with their human sacrifices. But John Todd couldn't get away with sexually abusing minors. Like, this doesn't match his story very well. But he did get sent to jail for a a measly six months, and when he got sent to jail, who did he call? Jack Chick. Really? <laughs> yeah. He called his buddy Jack Chick, who got him out of jail for medical reasons because he was evidently having seizures while in jail. Serious question. So he calls up. How does that conversation go? You call up Jack Chick and say, hey, Jack, I'm in a bit of a bind here. Can you get me out of jail? Can you bail me out of jail? And Jack Chick says, sure, buddy. What are you in jail for? And he says, so... Remember how when we first met, I called you up to tell you that I was involved in witchcraft? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> what, what is Jack Chicken to be like, oh, yeah, man, you you got to like, you got to get out of jail. <laughs> like, what? Like, why would you, why would, did he tell Jack Chick why he was in jail? I, or that, I like, have he, to guess that. Maybe he called Jack Chick and said, hey, I'm being persecuted for being a Christian. The witches that run the police department have made a false accusation against me and put me in jail. There you go. That has to be be what he was saying. And I'll explain where I get that from in a little bit. (sighs) Because (laughs) it's his excuse for something else that he did later. (sighs) 
I know that later on also when he gets caught lapsing back into witchcraft, because he does this a lot, he waffles between Christianity and witchcraft like constantly. His excuse for that is generally, poor me, I was so brainwashed by the evil Illuminati that raised me that I keep accidentally backsliding, but I'm back to Jesus now. So this all kind of goes, it confirms whether Chick and other pastors whether they want to believe, oh, it's the evil Satanist who threw me in jail, or I backslid because I was brainwashed, it goes with their whole Jesus fixed me idea. So Jack Chick and other pastors went right along with whatever it is that he told them to get out of jail. That's such a great scam to run. Like you can scam any fundy with, you can say, like if you get caught doing anything evil, you can just say, there was a demon inside me and Jesus has fixed me from the demon. And then like- And then you can just go along doing whatever you were doing until you get caught again. And then you repent again. Yes, that's such a scam. So Jack Jack got him out of jail and onto five years probation, but he immediately broke probation and he pops back up in 1977 in Phoenix, Arizona. He went back to Ken Long. So he went back to that well. God. Ken Long Jesus. got him another job, this time at a steakhouse. So here's a quote from Ken Long as given to Christianity Today in 1979. Quote, Todd swore he was out of witchcraft for good. But after only two weeks on the job, he was talking to two girls about plans to open up an occult bookstore. Jesus Christ, this like, wh- why, why do they keep helping him? Like, also, he's like, he's working there for two weeks. Yeah, you know, like he's working at the steakhouse for two weeks. Okay. If I know you for two weeks and you're now talking to me about trying to open up an occult bookstore, that that is not like, we're not close enough for me to do, you know, like two weeks. Yeah. So I think what this is, is like he's got a well in Phoenix. He's got a well in Dayton. He's got a well in California. And when he runs out of somebody's good graces in one of those places, he just hops on over to the next place. And then he stays there until he runs out of somebody's good graces. He either pisses off the Christians or pisses, pisses off the witches. And then he just hops over to his next place. And then by the time he gets back a few later, few years later, they're ready to forgive him, and he starts all over again. Yeah, I mean, imagine like you, you you're working at a job. Like, I mean, you you've worked service sector before. You're working at like he's he's working at the steakhouse. Have you have you worked in the restaurant before? You ever been like a waitress or something or like a? Yeah, I, I briefly worked at restaurants. I've also done bartending. Yeah, so like imagine new guy gets a job in the kitchen. He's working in the kitchen. He's there for two weeks. And like within two weeks, he's like, he's like, hey, girl, you want to start a, a, a <laughs> an occult bookstore with me just immediately after working? That's like, I, I don't even know this. Like this dude has to be mad charismatic. Well, like, I, I mean, person. he was. I listened to some recordings of him speaking and I found myself wanting to believe him. Like, did you not get that from listening to his recordings? It's like, yes, he sounds certifiable, but he also kind of sounds interesting. You know, the, do you watch Seinfeld? Uh, of course, you, you know Seinfeld. Yeah. You know the, the George Costanza line, it's not a lie if you believe it? Mm-hmm. That's what's going on. This is so nuts where he's just like, he he seems so sincere in everything that he's saying. Right. And it's so creepy because he's just li- either lying through his teeth or just so delusional that he actually believes it. And I don't know which one. So uh, let's see. He gets a job with Ken Long. Ken Long gets him a job at a steakhouse in Phoenix. He lasts two weeks. We get another few months of him going dark. And then he resurfaces in the evangelical Christian community in late 1977. And this time it's for real. 
This is the big one. This is the satanic panic going on speaking tours, satanic panic speaking tours thing. Yes. So he tried it in 1968 and his story wasn't big enough. Like the story that he originally told to John Outlaw way back in 68 was, I was a witch in the Navy, but now I'm a Christian. And that wasn't big enough. He went back to witchcraft. He came back to Christianity in 1972. And he told his big story and people didn't quite bite. And then he messed it up by getting kicked out of Melody Land Christian Center. So he went back to witchcraft. And then in 1977, he pops up for a third time. And this is the time it takes. This is the time it sticks. And he is naming names. His story is bigger than it's ever been before. It's wilder than it's ever been before. He's naming names and he's coming after a lot of big name preachers like Jerry Falwell, Jim Baker, Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, Bob Jones Sr. and Pat Robertson, according to his Wikipedia page. I read through this speech and also I listened to a recording of a different speech that he gave and uh, a few other because he names a lot of names. And I wrote down a list of all of the people who he says are Illuminati and or witchcraft aligned. Oh, I'd be very interested to hear that. Okay, would you like me to read it for you? Go for it. Okay, so here we go. We've got the 33rd degree Masons, the Council of 500, the Fortune 500, the Witches Church of America, the Church of All Worlds, Jerry Falwell, Jim Baker, Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, Bob Jones Sr., Pat Robertson, the Anti-Defamation League, the American Civil Liberties Union, David Duke, the Process Church of Final Judgment, which is uh, Charles Manson's church, the Garnerian Brotherhood, the Order of the Rose Cross, the Holy Order of the Garter, the DuPonts, the Kennedys, the Onassises, the Rockefellers, George McGovern, Strom Thurmond, Robert Byrd, Jimmy Carter, Golda Meir, Yasser Arafat, Ayatollah Khomeini, Leon Trotsky, Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev, the Saudi royal family, the Dutch royal family, the Bank of England, the Bank of France, King George III, Oliver Cromwell, William Wallace, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Trilateral Council, the Council on Foreign Relations, the United Nations, the United Methodist Church, the Catholic Church, the Omega Brotherhood, the Chamber of Commerce, the Knights of Columbus, the Philistines and the Oddfellows, the White and the Blue, Bewitched, I Dream of Genie, Ayn Rand, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, every rock musician, every producer in Hollywood, Thomas Jefferson, and Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> I'm sorry. Every rock musician, every producer in Hollywood, Thomas Jefferson just cracked me up for unknown reasons. Alexander Hamilton, man. I, 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 Satan's I, waiting I, in the wings for you. <laughs> No. Okay. Other thing though, like, cause he's talking about rock music. He brings up David Crosby like eight times in all of his different speeches. He's like talking about, oh, it's like, oh, I'm best friends with David Crosby. He's my close personal friend, David. Crosby. Like John Todd probably met David Crosby one time at a house party in Laurel Canyon. And now he can't go 10 minutes without name dropping David Crosby, like their best friends, which totally tracks because this is a guy who says he's a decorated green beret who slew scores of Viet Cong with his bare hands who, when he was actually parked behind a desk in Germany. And he's a guy who says he learned about the Illuminati from a professor at Columbia University when actually the guy wasn't actually a professor. And he taught like 20 people about astrology once at a conference on Long Island. Yeah, this is very on brand for John Todd. (laughs) I I would also like to point out, I don't think we're going to have time to get fully into this, but a lot of the people on his long, long list of people who are Illuminati are people who personally pissed him off. Yeah. 
It's like, like anybody. He'll put the Melody Land Christian Center on that list in a lot of his materials. It, obviously, oh, did I miss that one? You might have missed that one, but but he's he's mad at Melody Land Christian Center because they kicked him out because he was perving on teenage girls. And I've also seen where he named. Um, did you have? Isaac Bernadowitz on that list? No, I did not. That is, that's the name, I think, of the other guy, Gavin Frost and Isaac Bernadowitz, who were the Wiccan leaders who kicked him out of their Wiccan coven because he was perving on teenage girls. So in 1977, John Todd is back on the Christian scene for the third time. He's making an even bigger splash than he did in 1973. He is naming names and making people mad. And then everything changes when John Todd finds the IFB. <laughs> dun 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 oh god this is like just people begging for a conspiracy and this man is begging for an audience what it's could like, go wrong i was gonna say it's a marriage made in heaven but he's uh very satanic so it's a marriage made in hell so here's another <laughs> quote from christianity today on january 1st 1978 he joined independent faith baptist church in canoga park california that same day, he headed east where a speaking tour had been arranged by Pastor Tom Barry of the 3,000-member Bible Baptist Church in Elkton, Maryland. So the name of the pastor of Faith Baptist Church in Canoga Park, California, it's mentioned in this article from Christianity Today. The pastor's name is Roland Rasmussen. And I know all my f- <clears throat> all my former hackers, everybody who went to Hiles Anderson, just went, ooh, like I did when I read that line. Because if you went to Hiles Anderson, you know that the Rasmussen family is pretty big pretty well known in the Hiles Anderson camp of the IFB. Roland Rasmussen's son, Tim, is now the pastor of Faith Baptist Church that his dad used to pastor in the 70s. Tim Rasmussen graduated from Hiles Anderson College. He's still very heavily affiliated with HAC. He also spoke in chapel at Pensacola Christian College very recently. So these guys are like dyed-in-the-wool, big-name, big-church IFBers. You'll notice that I didn't give a fake name here. The reason that I chose to use the Rasmussen's family's real name is because Roland Rasmussen, the father, actually acted really reasonably in this whole story. And so this part of the, the story, it, this is actually like verifiable. It's verifiable and also an IFP pastor did the right thing. So wow, it, it, it's unusual. Buy a lottery ticket today, people. <laughs> What's Rasmussen's reputation within the IFB so- generally? Roland Rasmussen, the father, is is now dead, but his son, Tim, has a reputation around Hiles Anderson camp. He's kind of like a, a regular big name IFB pastor from California, kind of um, standard. I've, I've never heard anything really great about him. I've never heard anything really terrible about him. Run of the mill IFB guy. So there's no like muttering like there's allegations around stuff going on in his church or what like i did not dig super deep so there certainly could be something because it's a big ifb church and and you know we all know these things tend to happen but the reputation that i was aware of him when i was growing up was was definitely just like a regular ifb california pastor there are several of these really big ifb churches in california and like we talked about with eric last week there's a different vibe around these big california ifb churches they're very they're very polished their presentation is a lot more slick than the midwestern ifb that i grew up in but they can be very heavily affiliated with the midwestern ifb through hiles anderson college roland rasmussen was not one of the big 
four IFB pastors who sent John Todd out on his first speaking tour in the spring of 1978, but he was John Todd's actual pastor. He was the really? pastor of the church where he belonged at the time. So John Todd is going out on the speaking tour and his own pastor isn't one of the people backing him. And this and his own pastor has like conceivably has the juice to do it if he wanted to. Well, no, I don't think it's that. The pastors that are backing him are pastors from the East Coast where the tour is actually going to be located. Roland Rasmussen is definitely putting his stamp of approval on this guy by allowing him to be a member of the church. Um, When IFB missionaries go out to do mission stuff, they have to be a member of a IFB church. And that is often their sending church. You got to have the stamp of approval from somebody back home to go somewhere else and do IFB stuff. So you can't just be some rando that just shows up and says, I'm an IFB preacher guy and I'm. No, if you're independent, you have to give a reason. If you're like independent, not attached to an IFB church, because their whole doctrine is about belonging to a local church. Because they're independent Baptists and the height of everything, the highest authority over you is your pastor and your local church. Okay. And so if it's, if your local pastor is, so his past, so Rasmussen's probably the guy who's putting him in contact with the, the people who are sponsoring the tour. Okay. So, right. He is, uh, he's the one giving okay, his stamp of approval because everything in the IFB is dependent on what local church do you belong to? Because that's the highest authority. That's the only thing like between you and God that's your authority. So it's the same sort of thing like if you were getting out of Bible college and you would need to look up pastors who went to your Bible college in the area where you're going to. Okay, I get you. I get you. I get you. So John Todd went out on his first speaking tour. And when he got back to Faith Baptist Church in Canoga, California in April of 1978, he was talking about, oh, this this tour went great. I talked to a lot of people about my story, about how I used to be a Satanist witch guy and now I'm not. He was also claiming that he had been shot at in the parking lot of several churches, including his home church, Faith Baptist Church. Did that happen? No one else ever saw it happen. So, so I don't know. Nobody else ever heard gunshots, but he claimed that it happened all the time and that the Illuminati was out to get him and there was a bounty on his head. So they're just shooting at him when like if nobody's there and there's like no witnesses. So like you roll up to kill a guy and you do a drive by and nobody notices like you can take a second pass. That's right. Yeah, that's true. It's, I, <laughs> but if you're shooting with the powers of Satan, why would you miss to? begin with i don't know like you could like couldn't there just be like a spell to make sure you hit the guy i was gonna say like a spell for accuracy you know you you would think uh, yeah some extra mana or something and and you you have your accuracy up i don't know man none of this makes any sense he's just like getting shot at and the guys are like oh no we missed better run away we'll try again next week uh (laughs) Because he's going to be alone again, I guess. Like, if somebody shoots at you, are you going to just, and, and like, drives off, are you going to ride solo ever, anywhere? Any, no. Apparently, if you're John Todd, you are. Um, he's invincible. He's like, so here's the thing. Here's where it comes Teflon. crashing down with Roland Rasmussen. Change his name to Teflon Todd. <laughs> So, so well, this is this actually sticks to him uh, pretty well. <laughs> so, John Todd had told Rasmussen and the congregation of the church where he belonged that he had been backsliding in 1974 to 1976 when he ran this occult bookstore in Ohio. But he told them that he hadn't gone back into any actual occult activity. He said, I was backsliding, but I wasn't actually doing any witchcraft. 
Well, a church member turned up a tape of John Todd speaking. He gave the date as March 3rd, 1976, and in that tape, he was instructing others in witchcraft and doing spells on the tape. The church member took it to Rasmussen, who took it to the Deacon Board of Faith Baptist Church. The Deacon Board and Pastor Rasmussen confronted John Todd in a meeting, and Todd apparently, quote, shrugged and left. So the church voted him out of membership because he had lied to them about his Satanism. Wow. Uh, So there's where an IFB pastor actually does a very reasonable thing and acts within the rules and boundaries that IFB churches claim to follow. So here's a question for you. Is like John Todd's expulsion the type of thing that an IFB church would split over? Hmm. Yes, but probably not the way you think. I feel like, so what I feel like you were asking is, would a church split happen because some people believed John Todd and some didn't. Sure, yeah, that could happen, but I wouldn't see it as being very likely. The thing about John Todd is that he inspired people to really weird mental leaps. According to Christianity Today, one church member came to their pastor after John Todd left their church and said, quote, Pastor, we will not allow them to torture our families. We have decided that we will kill our children before that happens. Whoa. So this idea of like, we got to stock up food and move to the mountains. We are going to have to kill the Satanists if they come after us. We might have to kill our children to save them from the Satanists. That was the kind of paranoia that a church would split over. And that was the kind of thinking that John Todd was putting into people's heads. And that was what was causing mainstream leaders to reject him outright. Here's, uh, I guess, a detail that I noticed from the story, and I want to maybe get a little clarification on it. So a church member turned up a tape of him doing witchcraft on tape. Yeah, John Todd had recorded a tape of him giving his normal speech, like his normal testimony that his story that he told everybody that he got famous off of telling, but he had recorded it over this other cassette tape of him doing spells in 1976. So he just got sloppy and he got caught. Okay, so it wasn't like a situation of like somebody is like, I think this guy's fishy. I'm going to look into this. And then they turn up this tape. It was just like he just... No, John Todd recorded over a tape, an old tape of him doing witchcraft uh, with his new Christian story. And he got sloppy and didn't listen to the tape all the way through. And there was like 10 minutes of him doing witchcraft on the end of the tape. What if it was not sloppy and like on purpose where he was like, see, here's proof that I was actually like in witchcraft, you know? Like where he left that on the end on purpose. That doesn't seem like his MO to me, but you don't think who knows? Who knows? I mean, like it's always like scant evidence, but he it's like, you know, he's citing himself as <laughs> evidence for his claim. And he does that all the time. Like it's like uh you go in and you edit Wikipedia and then you cite the Wikipedia <laughs> passage that you edited in your paper and then you'll be like, see, it's true, it's right, oh it's on God. Wikipedia. <laughs> That's why Wikipedia is never a standalone source. No. So either way, regardless of whether he got caught on accident or on purpose on La Jockscop, John Todd got kicked out of this church in California, but he continued to travel and speak throughout evangelical and IFB churches uh, throughout the year 1978 and early 1979. Could he just say, yeah, I'm part of uh, what's it? Faith Baptist Church. 
Could he just say, yeah, I'm part of Faith Baptist Church and they won't check on that? I feel like some pastors would be calling Faith Baptist Church and saying, hey, is this guy a member of your church? He says he is. But I'm sure there were also some who who wouldn't have called up and checked up on him. Like he still had the support of Pastor Barry, who was actually the guy who was arranging this tour for him. And I guess he still had the support of Jack Chick. He still had, he had is, the undying yeah. support of Jack Chick um, and, and a lot of other people who he had convinced of his story. So we have the uh, the full transcript of a presentation he did in fall of 1978, and we have this transcript for the weirdest possible reason. We've referenced this a few times, but we have this transcript because it was published by the family, the other cult. They got a hold of one of his tapes of him giving his story, giving his testimony, and they added comments like, See, they didn't believe this guy just like they don't believe us, but he's saying some of the same things that we've been saying for years. So the family was using his material to further brainwash their own members. It is unclear. He he never spoke to the family. I thought he did, and then I turned out being wrong. It's unclear whether members of the family were present at one of his speeches, and then they purchased a tape on the day it was recorded and took it back to their cult. Or whether they were not present, but just got a hold of one of his tapes. I'm not sure which one of those two things happened. But either way, we have a full transcript of exactly what he was saying to these churches in 1978, thanks to the family. I wonder if like the bootleg tapes of uh, the John Todd speaking tour, all like all of them have the 10 minutes at the end of him doing witchcraft. <laughs> the original tape that he taped over was like over the bootleg. He's just like, yeah, make me 50 copies of these. I'm going to sell these. After the, <laughs> um, <laughs> I I want that. To you know, be true. if anybody has one of these cassette tapes, why don't you let us know? It's so funny. We're gonna be out here hunting for like John Todd bootlegs, like people, you know, like people hunt for Grateful Dead bootlegs, like yes. rare. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're 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 not uh, deadheads. We're what what are they called? Todd heads, Toddies, Johnnies. Johnny Toddies. I don't. I don't know where we're going with this. I don't know. But like, so this this whole speech though, it's transcribed. It's on the internet. You can read it if you want. Um, I have to warn you before you click the link and like read the speech. It is the worst web design I have ever seen in my life. In like many years, like there's different fonts, there's different sizes, letters in the same line. Some of the stuff is like all ca- like. So one of the reasons why we have so many Google Docs for this episode is because one of them is just me having to copy and paste the speech in, fixed the <laughs> you know the the formatting, so it's the same font and the same size and like the same spacing and like none of it's like bold for like the whole document and then I could read it. Uh, but you can read the original one. Um, it might give you a cluster headache, but like, you know, like that's how, you know, it's like authentic cult web design. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know how there's like a restaurant if you haven't tried the restaurant yet and like you walk in and you want to know whether it's authentic or not. So you walk in and then the carpet's like dingy as hell and from like 1997 and the staff is super rude to you. And like, that's how you know the food's going to slap. Yes. But like, yeah, yeah. So like, you know that the conspiracy theory is going to be extra spicy and extra legitimate. Like if if the web design makes it borderline unreadable. That is a good observation. (laughs) 
So it seems to me that when John Todd went on these speaking tours, he didn't give the same speech word for word every time, but it was very similar every time because I read through the transcript from the family and it is not word for word, but it's really, really similar to the recordings of him telling his story that we turned up on YouTube. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know how Donald Trump would say the same shit? at like every rally but it would be slightly different every time yes <laughs> yeah it's it's like that like when, when he was going on his speaking tour he was approaching it like how you would approach a speaking tour like if you were an evangelist trying to raise money for your ministry and at the like at the end of the speech john todd is allegedly tr- like he allegedly has this ministry that he's trying to raise money for and it's a ministry where he's saying we get people out of the illuminati and get them saved in like a, a camp or like a treatment center sort of thing and according to him he and his ministry at the time of the speaking tour were currently treating philip rothschild's teenage girlfriend who he says is one of the top people in the illuminati right he talked a lot about philip rothschild's teenage girlfriends apparently ayn rand was one before rothschild told her to write atlas shrugged which was a coded manual for how the satanists were going to take over the world which is nuts because right-wingers and conspiracy theorists usually love ayn rand because of all of like the anti-government stuff so there is something that you should know about this philip rothschild claim because this name comes up a lot in john todd's materials according to the occult confessions podcast there is no philip rothschild There was a Philippe Rothschild who lived approximately in the same time frame as as Ayn Rand, but he was a winemaker and a Grand Prix driver. Really? He was a Grand Prix driver? Yeah, but not very Illuminati-type professions, and there's no reason to think that he and Ayn Rand would ever have met. I don't know, man. Like, a lot of the people like back in the day... There is no proper name Philip Rothschild. There has never been one. The people who would go Grand Prix, who would be Grand Prix drivers, it was just whoever the f*** was rich enough to own a car. So it would be like princes and just rich guys. And then every once in a while, there would be one guy who's like actually good at driving it. But everyone else, it was just, this is the guy who happens to own the car and he wants to go racing against his rich friends. That was like... So if he's rich, I guess that does support the Illuminati theory. (laughs) So in 1979, John Todd's empire starts to come apart at the seams because a couple big things happen. Jerry Falwell publishes an editorial speaking out against John Todd in the Liberty University newspaper called The Journal Champion. I found this article because it was mentioned in the Christianity Today article. One interesting bit that I pulled from the Journal Champion article is that Todd claimed that the choir director of Calvary Chapel is actually the person that received the two checks for $4 million each to start Maranatha Music and get the young people used to hearing Christian rock music. Calvary Chapel, of course, denies these claims, but Calvary Chapel also points out that they do not have a church choir and therefore do not have a choir director. (laughs) who John Todd claims that he gave the money to. Okay. Uh, One other thing that I found from this era was a transcript of a cassette tape that Todd sent out of prison in the 90s. 
We'll get to that. Todd claimed that he leaked the news that Strom Thurmond was a Mason, and that's what got Thurmond kicked off the board of Bob Jones University. This claim was published in the February 1979 Christianity Today article that we've been referencing this entire episode, but Christianity Today issued a retraction on April 20th of 1979. The retraction reads in part, quote, the senator says he remains both a Mason and a BJU board member. So that's just another, in the words of Jack Hiles, untruth from John Todd. I think it is a stunning indictment of both the Masons and the BJU board that they would have a man like Strom Thurmond as one of their members. But that's beside the point. So Strom, Strom Thurmond is going to come back. <laughs> so just, yeah. just I'll, I'll tell you the rest about him later. God. So coincidentally, in 1979, Todd warned that the satanic takeover had officially begun and he claimed that he was moving to Montana for his safety and then he disappeared. Although what he had said would influence the world for years. But this had nothing to do with the fact that some very influential thought leaders in evangelical Christianity were coming out against him. That's definitely not why he disappeared in 1979 with all the money that he had raised for the Satanist Treatment Center. And he goes dark again for several years, starting in 19, late 1979. And yeah, we don't hear about him for a while. So like, um, we know that this guy's a liar because of like literally everything. I want to get into the anatomy of what specifically about this man and his stories makes like made Christians want to believe him. Cause it like in my view, there's a few different elements that I think are the so like number one, I like I want to ask you. So when you were growing up, did you frequently hear accounts of people who were like self-proclaimed like for I was a devil worshiper and now I found Jesus? Like how how frequent did you hear stuff like that? I heard stuff like this all the time, but it was mostly through chick tracts and other chick sponsored materials. I don't think I ever heard somebody making these claims in person. I remember being really fascinated by these claims growing up because I was hearing all of this, everything that John Todd claimed about Satanism and the conspiracy and all this stuff. Uh, I was hearing, except for the thing about uh, police specifically being infested with witches. I didn't hear that one. No, because you guys love the cops. Yes. So, except for the ones that were eventually going to come shut down our church, but that's another story. Yeah, but those are federal cops. They're different. They're more safe. Yeah. But I remember reading all of these claims, like very similar stuff to what John Todd was saying. And I really wanted to go hear one of these people in person, but I don't think I ever did. I'm trying, I texted my brothers to see if they could remember anything ever at like youth conference or pastor school, because that's where they would trot out the people with the big claims. Like I smuggled Bibles into China. I was former Mossad and all that. I don't specifically remember any former Satanists, although it's possible that I heard one. I, I think it's a lot like, you know, John Todd's claim that he was a Green Beret in Vietnam? Like His lie about yeah, being a Green his, Beret in Vietnam? Yes. <laughs> yeah. From, from experience, do you think that fundies are more inclined to believe a more outlandish tale than a thing like of a uh, professed former sinner than a reasonable one? Because I remember you saying that you, like you would get people coming in who would be like, I'm a former hell's angel or I'm I was in the mafia and now I found Jesus and and I guess that's like somewhat believable but like ex grand druid priest is like people who had these wild stories were like celebrities to us 
anybody with a past that was salacious in any way was the top tier of the top tier fundies. And their word was like gospel. So, okay, so this is a this is an example. This is not salacious in the same way at all. But we had a couple of IFB evangelists who had been born with birth defects that were born without arms or legs or both. And they were big celebrities in the fundamentalist movement. It, the, the, the fundamentalist thought is, well, they would have had every reason to be mad at God, but they didn't choose to be mad at God. They chose to serve God. And what's your excuse for not serving God? Oh, sorry. Triggered, Triggered myself. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it coming. <laughs> I get this like um, when that happens, I get like lightheaded all of a sudden. And I'm like, oh, shit, I did it again. So also um, uh, anti-abortion message is very easily projected upon their existence. Personally, I feel like the fundies go way into P.T. Barnum territory with their treatment of people with disabilities, but that's not the topic today. Oof. Anyway, any, my, my point is that anybody with a unusual story is like a celebrity. So were sinners or like ex-criminals treated the same sort of way as like ex-gays? Yeah, I think so. There, There's just there's a hierarchy of who was a worse sinner and whoever was the worst sinner before finding Jesus is the most popular. So there was one preacher, and a lot of people are going to know who I'm talking about, who was a popular teen conference preacher, a popular Bible teacher at Hiles Anderson. He was in the military, and he would tell all these stories of drinking and carousing back in his military days. So he was pretty popular. But the guy who was an ex-heroin addict and ex-Hell's Angel was even more popular. And if we had had a legit former Satanists, he would have been even more popular than the Hell's Angels guy. So in Baptist theology, I, I just want to make sure I get this right. Saved versus unsaved is a binary. So if you've been a criminal or a villain for much of your life, then you get saved. You're the same level of Christian as everybody else. Is That's right. You're, right? you're the same level of saved, the same assuredness that you will go to heaven, which is 100%. So it's you are 100% going to heaven or you are 0% going to heaven. That's the binary. So even if you murder 100 people and then you get saved five minutes before you die, you're just as saved. You're just as going to heaven as Jack Hiles even though you may not have his level of spirituality. So you could have been uh, holding up the 7-Eleven last week uh, with a gun and pointing guns at people and really just traumatizing them. And then you could go in and, and get saved and you're, and you're good. So do you remember in the Mel Gibson movie, the guy on the cross next to Jesus says something like, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes. That's where they get this theology from. It was right before he pecks the guy's eyes out, the other guy's eyes out with the crow. Yeah, uh, that's where they get this theology from. The thief on the cross was a sinner who trusted Jesus like five minutes before he died. So you go in, you get baptized. By this time, you've told the preacher, I was a robber and I pointed guns at people in the store and on the street, made them give me their money. And they were like traumatized from those horrible things I did. And like the congregation knows this. It's like we have to tell everybody this guy's story. He's like he's got to go around and everybody so like everyone can. So like you could transition from being bad criminal to being an evangelist and then you can travel around and solicit donations from people in like a day or I don't know if it's like a day, but like a week. Okay. 
So in the modern IFB, the IFB that I grew up in 20 years ago, how this would go is you come in, you confess to crimes, you get saved, you get baptized, and then they would send you off to Hiles Anderson for a year to like get your theology straight and learn how to preach, which is how I went to Hiles Anderson with a lot of people who had this kind of story. A lot of people who were recent converts um, and had been involved with something that the IFB deemed sinful. Like I went to I went to Hiles Anderson with people who had been addicted to drugs like very recently. And then and I've talked about like the social strata of dating at Hiles Anderson, because if you dated one of those people that lowered your social standing and it was a whole thing with that. But 50 years ago, that whole gonna send you to Hiles Anderson for a year to make sure you're legit and get your theology straightened out is precisely what they did not do to John Todd. He talked to a couple pastors and they were all like, this guy seems legit. Let's send him out to spread the message. Maybe it also helped that he was probably raised within the evangelical movement in some way. Like we, we've talked, like he says he was raised in witchcraft and he could speak the lingo. Yeah, and he could speak the lingo, like you said, where with the the Pentecostal thing getting saved just by Jesus and not by the Trinity. I guess as long so as long as you can find an IFB pastor to rubber stamp your testimony, you can just go around and say whatever you want. And like it could all be lies, but in John Todd's case, he had like an IFB pastor that was booking him speaking like tour dates for him. Right. And I think the other factor is that John Todd wasn't teaching theology. He wasn't teaching the Bible. He was giving his testimony of what he claimed had happened to him and what he claimed to have experienced. So maybe he got a little extra slack for that. But as we found out in this episode, his story has a lot of plot holes. And since it was 1978 and 1979, when he was most active, people didn't have Google. People couldn't find the holes in his story as quickly as we were able to. And a lot of people believed him. And not only did a lot of people believe him, Jack Chick believed him. And he used his story to continue spreading his ideas among evangelical Christians for decades. Like I said, I was hearing John Todd's ideas through Chick comics, literally 30 years after he was no longer an active speaker. Wow. So in like 1980 or so, uh, John Todd kind of disappears uh, from the evangelical speaking circuit. So the couple of reasons, one, uh, Rasmussen basically called him on the carpet for lying. He's getting called out by Jerry Falwell, Billy Graham, like everyone. Yeah. He also claimed multiple times that he had been shot at. He said the Illuminati didn't like him spilling their secrets and he was like number one on their hit list. There were bounties on his head. So he said he was going dark for safety. He said that the New World Order takeover was coming very soon. So he was going to stockpile five years of food. He said like the New World Order takeover is already in effect. It'll be done in a couple months. So I'm going to stockpile food and move to Montana with my family. So, so something that you should know about this general time period shortly after 1980 is that he there is evidence that he spoke to the Weaver family, the family involved in the Ruby Ridge siege. Really? So his ideas, yeah, he caused that. His ideas caused that. So he's the one saying the like the Illuminati is going to the government to- is out to get you. The Illuminati are taking over, stockpile food, and move to the middle of nowhere with your family. Yeah, he directly probably caused the the Ruby Ridge. Uh, okay, incident. and then Ruby Ridge in turn caused Branch Davidians which in turn caused Oklahoma City bomb. Jesus fucking Christ, dude. I told you, this guy is the Forrest Gump of the Satanic Panic. So we like the thing is that we didn't have that 
written in our doc. So I didn't know about that until Sadie literally just told me about it now. I I'm just like, found out. I'm sorry. I just found out about that today on the um the Occult Confessions podcast that I was listening to. Really? Did they do one about him? Yeah. So so the podcast that I keep referencing, it's called Occult Confessions. Uh they did they did a three part series on John Todd. They they covered it from and uh, from a cult point of view, it's it was pretty good. Um, I got a lot of of good information from that. Wow! So th- like that is nuts. I'm I am God. So, I mean, I'm, gonna... I'm sorry. I totally dropped that one audio out of nowhere, but it was too good not to put in. Oh no, you have to because like that's so. The second part, I think, reasons why he had to disappear is that he basically spent all of 1978 and 1979 telling everybody that the Illuminati was going to have a takeover in 1979 and like in 1980. 1970 is like it's coming next year. 1979 is like it's coming this year or next year. 7980 is when it's happening. He said the blueprint for the takeover was the Ayn Rand book, Atlas Shrugged. The energy supply would be cut off. The food supply would be cut off. Uh, they're making it illegal for you to stock more than one month worth of food, which... uh obviously not true. Martial law would be imposed. Then Israel would be involved in a war. United States would rush to Israel's aid starting World War III. And then that would conclude with the consolidation of power under the New World Order and that Jimmy Carter is the Illuminati's chosen man to enact this plan. So 1980 rolls around. This doesn't happen. And so he's got to run or like he's got to disappear or like change his story or something or or what? I don't know. So he just tells everybody that it's happening soon. It's happening any day now. And he goes underground. But of course, that's not the end of his story. Because, I mean, he pretty much vanishes from the public eye and the name John Todd doesn't ever mean like that much to anyone except like like you were all in on the satanic like ritual abuse conspiracy like you thought this was true but like the only time that you would have ever heard his name was mentioned in a chick yeah you the only time you would have heard that name is mentioned in a chick comic right so his stories were still influencing my life but i had no idea who he was except for that jack chick said that he was an ex-druid grand high priest his stories the only the only place he pops up between 1980 and 1987 when he spoke to the ruby ridge people was probably in 1982 but that's all we that's all we have wow his stories were also echoed by some other very prominent speakers around the time specifically this guy mike warnke mike warnke told a very similar story to john todd's in fact it was so similar that john todd publicly accused warnke of plagiarizing his story in a, in an attempt to cash in on Todd's popularity. You can read about this in the family transcript of Todd's speech. It should be noted that Mike Warnke's book about his very similar experiences came out in 1972. So it's possible that the plagiarism went the other way. <laughs> so w- which way do you think? Because from what I've read, there is scant, if like any at all, evidence that Warnke was ever involved in Satanism or witchcraft like to any degree. No, he wasn't. But we know for a fact that John Todd was even if like everything else that he said about it was like ludicrous and false. Yeah, Mike Warnke was completely discredited. Um, he remained active as a Christian comedian for years after his Satan Satanism story was completely disproven. Um, but his book, The Satan Seller, was was completely fictional. Completely, he's been uh, discredited on all of that. John Todd, on the other hand, the Occult Confessions podcast looks at these things from an occult point of view, and they did agree that he had some kind of occult knowledge. He had 
he name dropped people that the average guy in 1970 something just wouldn't know. So John Todd was involved with the occult to some degree. As far as which way the plagiarism went, let's look at it like a timeline. Because in 1968, John Todd claimed that he was a witch while in the Navy. Warnke's book came out in 1972. Todd was claiming to be a former witch long before Warnke's book came out, but he didn't make any claims about this whole huge story and grand druid high priest and all of that until 1973 when he was on the Amazing Prophecies show. So here's what I think happened. Do you want to tell our listeners about the article you read about the origins of the modern Illuminati myth? Because that's like the turning point of my entire theory. So this is just the nuttiest thing ever that I turned up. Everybody and their mother has heard of the Illuminati, like some shadowy secret group that is running everything in the world and that they're going to take over and install the new world order. When you find out where this myth came from, you guys are like... it's just the, the, literally the stupidest. This may be the best thing that you've ever turned up for our podcast. <laughs> you think I, this is like. This is excellent. God. So the actual Illuminati was an Enlightenment era society of like great thinkers and uh, secularists that was founded in Bavaria. And they sort of like kind of faded out after a couple of decades. The term Illuminati didn't make a comeback until the 1960s. When I guess it was like referenced in a parody religious text called Principia Discordia, written by uh, Greg Hill and Carrie Wendell Thornley. So like this is just like a, a joke book, like, you know, before there was memes, you had comedic books. I guess like parody books, like farcical books. And this is like a big joke. They made like a fake joke religious text and printed it out on like their buddy's Xerox machine. So this apparently got uh, read by a guy named Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who was a writer for Playboys. So Wilson and Thornley started writing fake letters to print in in Playboy. Like this guy's a writer for uh, for Playboy magazine because Playboy had like a well known letters from the readers section. Yeah, and they just write like gag letters to to print in there because he he was a writer for the magazine, so he'd write gag letters to put in there, and the letters would be alleging a secret society called the Illuminati and wild, harebrained, and unbelievable conspiracies that they were allegedly involved in. As a joke, this was this was like fully a joke. They were just like saying, "Oh, the the Illuminati are behind like JFK assassination and the fuel crisis." Blah 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 blah. No, it was like fully a joke. Then they later wrote a book series called the Illuminatius Trilogy, which is where they're like alleging that the JFK assassination and like various other ridiculous things are all like an Illuminati plot and the whole Illuminati new world order thing. It was like a hoax. It was a joke that they made up for fun. And the people who were reading it were supposed to know that it was a joke. It like, So the philosophical thing behind this, according to the article you sent me, is that Hill and Thornley apparently thought that society was getting too authoritarian and they wanted to shake things up like philosophically on a purely like thought experiment level. They thought that they would introduce misinformation to society. The idea was Hill and Thornley thought it was a good thing to make people question the narratives they were being told and to question the sources of information. Author David oh Bramwell, who's, who, who writes about this stuff, calls it, quote, an idealistic means of getting people to wake up to the suggested realities that they inhabit. 
So on a philosophical level, I see it, but this plan went off the rails by writing this parody text, Principia Discordia. These guys accidentally started the satanic panic in QAnon. So thanks, guys. (laughs) Do you remember Pizzagate? Do you remember that? I remember it well. Pizzagate was originally started as a 4chan joke. Like people on 4chan were like, this is a joke. Let's see how far we can take this. And then some guys trying to shoot up a pizza parlor. That's how far it went. That like yes. that every time somebody tries to start out like one of these like hoax like things as a joke. So I, I guarantee you that's going to happen with the whole, you know, birds aren't real. How that's oh, yeah. just a hoax and a joke. I guarantee you somebody's going to like take that too far. It is. It's already started happening. There have been major news stories where news outlets fell for it. And we're like subset of society believe that birds are actually government surveillance, surveillance devices. Find out more at five. God. And. And then I'm sure that like all of these crazy people are going to be like, you know what? I, that's probably true. Or the government probably started that fake conspiracy theory to, to distract, distract us from something doing. else. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, uh, so anyway, that's how the modern Illuminati myth got started, which is just God. insane. You know, like every conspiracy theorist thinks that they're Nicolas Cage in National <laughs> Treasure, but like they're actually Nicolas Cage in Vampire's Kiss. <laughs> I don't know like but like this whole thing is like if somebody watched National Treasure and then actually decided to go steal the Declaration of Independence to see if there is a treasure map on the back of it. Yes. So building off of that here that's where the Illuminati modern Illuminati myth came from. Here's what I think happened with John Todd. So John Todd was working at an an occult bookstore, and I don't really see a reason to doubt that part of his claim. He probably was at some point. He was involved with the cultural interest in witchcraft and satanic stuff. This was a thing that happened in the late 60s. It's not just a lie from Jack Chick. It's a real cultural phenomenon that people were getting interested in the occult. It was a trend. Like, you know, TikTok. LaVey's Satanic Bible came out in 1969. The Manson murders were fresh on everyone's mind. The Exorcist, the novel came out in 1971. The movie came out in 1973. People were genuinely interested in the topic of Satanism. It's just one of many cultural things that happened during the 1970s. I think John Todd was somehow peripherally involved in this cultural phenomenon. And also, he was reading Playboy and he came across these Illuminati rumors. Because what else would a young serviceman in the late 60s be doing other than reading Playboy? Like, of course he, of course he did. He got interested. He already had some information about the occult and Wicca on hand because he'd been interested in that. His mental instability and his delusional nature latched onto this Illuminati thing and he wanted to learn more. Maybe he found Mike Warnke's book. Maybe not. Maybe he read a bunch of chick tracts. Maybe not. But eventually, his mental illness and the materials he was consuming convinced him of this elaborate story that he constructed out of his own mind and ended up telling to thousands of people. Yeah, like we said, John Todd's military service record says that he was discharged because he was delusional to the point where he was unable to distinguish fact from reality. So either that or he was just a pathological liar who would say literally anything to anyone, regardless of whether it was true or not, or whether or not there was any evidence supporting it. And whether like and without any care for the consequences of being caught lying, like them chalking it up to a mental condition was a good way to like get rid of him because he was a liability 
if he continued to serve in the military. That or he wanted out of the military, so he pretended to be delusional. Yes. And then realized that he oh. could make money off of being delusional. But however it happened, he started telling this story and this story got him positive attention. So whether he, I personally think that he really did believe his own story, at least eventually he really, really did believe all this. But however it happened, this story got him positive attention. It circulated. And you have to remember, pre-Google, pre-viral videos, people would believe you if you stood in front of them and said, this is not a myth. I lived it for the same reason that people believed Michelle Smith when she went on Oprah and talked about her fake experiences one year later in 1980. So when John Todd stood in front of people in a church building and said, this is true, I lived it, they believed him and they ran with it. They didn't know that he was either severely mentally unwell or a pathological liar. All they saw was a handsome, clean-cut man with the power of several big IFB pastors behind him. How could he be lying? And so we talked about this in our Satanic Panic episode. There was claims by mainstream media that one million Satanists were practicing ritual abuse in the United States. That was on Geraldo. If you listen to the to John Todd tell his story, he's making the claim. He says there's 13,000 uh, uh, clergy in the Illuminati in just the state of Texas. And then he like asks you to like infer that for like how many witches there are in the US and the ritual abuse they claim is pretty much identical. So like you can draw this straight line between John Todd to this crazy story being told on Geraldo Rivera. This is god. Yeah, and there were books written based on John Todd's claims. Several of them were published by Chick Publications, but other people picked this up and wrote their own books, like Fritz Springmeier, a bank robber, who wrote uh, his book, The 13 Bloodlines of the Illuminati, in, I think, 1995. Yeah, that's the one that we talked about earlier in the... Um, yeah, way in back the in the beginning, about the Collins claim. So as you probably recall, the satanic panic was put into full swing by the book Michelle Remembers. Could Michelle Smith have gotten her ideas about satanic ritual abuse that she even either lied about or was misled by her psychiatrist to think were true from someone like John Todd or Mike Warnke, who may or may not have gotten their ideas from each other somehow. Yeah, it might have been Pazder who like was exposed to John Todd or was Yeah, did Pazder to- read The Satan Seller and then combine that with his experiences growing up as a child where there was a satanic panic in the area he grew up in as a kid and then impress that onto Michelle Smith? Yeah, well, it's it's wild also to think about like the connection between these things because if you look at the delusional claims that John Todd was making when he was in the army, he said that there were like he he would like falsely report homicides and suicides suicides and injuries and stuff which you know the falsely reporting like rituals of of like homicide as being part of the ritual is central to the satanic panic what else was he doing he was using these uh, witchcraft rituals as a pretense to commit sexual violence against like young women which is also the thing that that was apparently happening in satanic yeah, ritual. Yeah, a central abuse. claim so, like, of the satanic panic. All of these things that like the satanic ritual abuse claims were, it was just the that John Todd did on a Tuesday. And he was like, no, this is part of witch ritual. Yeah, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. God. So I want to talk about the, the end of the end of the John Todd story. So he went dark in 1980. The only other place he pops back up is in in the the Weaver Ruby Ridge group in 19 like 82 or 83. And he doesn't come back up for air until 1987 when he shows up in South Carolina. He was arrested for rape in South Carolina in 1987. 
and he was convicted in 1988. He was sentenced to 30 years because he he was arrested for the rape of one woman and then another woman came out and then two children who he had been teaching karate lessons to came out and said that he molested them which is the most on brand sentence in this entire episode so he went he went to prison for like a good long time he made cassette tapes while he was in prison that were then transcribed and sent out to people who still followed him and believed in him and i found the transcripts of these tapes through fritz springmeyer's book Of course, Todd claims that this rape accusation, rape conviction, was just the Illuminati catching up to him and putting him in jail to silence him. Of course, allegations of sexual abuse had followed Todd for decades because it was his M.O. Every time he got back involved with the occult, he would just like try to get some woman to do witchcraft rituals with him because like that's just that was just his move. Yeah, Because that was how he got an end to abuse young women and teenage girls yeah he's just like you want to do witchcraft with me okay i'm god i mean he was literally in jail for the exact same thing in 1976 when jack chick bailed him out he was working at a jesus movement coffee shop and he got fired for doing this that's like so so when you see in a chick comic that the evil satanists are recruiting young women for witchcraft um and then sexually abusing them maybe it's because chick's source was doing exactly that and then making a business of telling other people telling people how other people did that kind of thing it's not me that's evil that i didn't know it was wrong because i didn't know that satanism was evil like yes so even here's why i kind of tend to believe that John Todd was legitimately delusional and believed his own story. When he was in jail starting in 1988, he was still telling the same story. In the transcript I mentioned earlier, he was talking about how Satanists and witches in the South Carolina Police Department were framing him and taking his materials and trying to shut him down. He had multiple conspiracy theories about the specific people who were involved in his arrest and conviction and the newspaper outlets that reported it. He also repeated the Strom Thurmond thing here. He said that Thurmond was out to get him because of him getting him kicked off the board of Bob Jones for being a Mason. He also was pretty gross about trying to discredit the woman who said that he raped her. I do want to point out I do want to point out he claimed that Charles Manson went to jail on purpose because he wanted to convert all of the prisoners in the United States to witchcraft and then they would have an army that the government uh the, the Illuminati could use in their upcoming world takeover if his claims about that were true and his claims were true about the Illuminati having hits out on him you would have thought that one of these people would have gone to him in jail just a thought but it's interesting to me that he stuck to his own story even after he was in jail, there is a there is a lawsuit where he apparently flipped back to Wicca while he was in jail and then tried to sue the government for not allowing him to practice his religion. But he flipped back to Christianity eventually. And that makes me really think he may have been convinced of his own delusions. You know how I sort of see this? I mean, I, I think that you might be right about this, but like, you know how every like lightweight white nationalist in the United States is convinced that his ancestors were like Viking kings or some shit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because like he went on Ancestry.com and it came back like 4% Scandinavian or something. Like it's the sort of thing where like and, and like because of that, he's like better than everyone else and they're all trying to keep him down. Like the, everyone around him is like trying to keep him down. They're trying to keep white cis men down. Like, right. Like you can't have a voice anymore. Like, but actually, like his life sucks because he just plays video games all day and 
you know, like, and he needs Joe Rogan and like Jordan Peterson to like tell him that he's a big boy and that he can uh, uh, go out and do things. On, like, I think that's sort of the thing here. You know what I'm saying? Where when you're faced with a colossal failure, like John Todd obviously was many, many times in his life, you can either do the mature thing and like take inventory, figure out what was wrong, use it as a learning experience and move forward and try to be a better person. Or you can just double down on your own delusions and just think, no, I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. That's just how it is. And everyone else is out to get me. I think it's I see this as like an end result of American exceptionalism. Interesting. American exceptionalism is this culturally ingrained myth that America is somehow different and special and better than other countries. And what's grown out of that, in my opinion, is our individual need to be different and special and better than other people. We build our brands around what makes us feel like an individual and not not like a cog in the capitalist machine, but that's another discussion for another time. And I'm not calling people out because I'm not an exception to this. I've built an entire podcast around my unique life experience of being raised in a cult. But I think we all need to feel special and feel unique because of capitalism. Sorry. Uh, something in my throat there. But I, I feel like it has something to do with the rejection of communism as well. Like we were fed this narrative in American schools that under big, bad, evil communism, no one is special and everyone is just a cog in a machine. So I feel like that has fed into American exceptionalism and that has fed into this individual need to be special. I think it's so ingrained into our society. And I think that John Todd felt special that's 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 an interesting take i mean he's dead so it doesn't really matter no it doesn't it doesn't really matter um actually almost notable i'm glad you brought up communism and like anti-communism i think it's notable communism is almost like completely absent from this conspiracy theory other than like he you know he named like lenin and stalin and trotsky and whatever as like illuminati members but he's also like naming uh like ayn rand as an Illuminati, but like, so it's not like an, like an ideological split, like, okay, the capitalists are the good guys and the communists are the bad guys. I think from my experience growing up in the IFB and like what I was told about communism and what I was taught in ACE paces about it, I think there's a lot of anti-communist subtext in what John Todd is saying. You know, I think you're probably right about that. Um, and I think probably one of the biggest contributing factors to the, I think that I think the biggest way that probably anti-communism contributes to this is with regards to McCarthyism and the Red Scare and how people were willing to believe that there is a massive malicious conspiracy just behind the scenes of what's going on with your government. Yeah, the the cultural and, and that's maybe why John Todd's story didn't catch on mainstream the first time he told it in 1973. Maybe that's why it caught on differently in 1978. There are a lot of, a lot of cultural components to this. But what I, what I see, we've got this guy, John Todd, or whatever his name really was. He was very likely abused as a child and he wanted to do something to make himself feel good. So he got into witchy stuff. He latched onto works by Raymond Buckland. 
Maybe he found community in some of the occult stuff he was interested in when he was a teenager. And then he read this Illuminati prank stuff in Playboy. And we know that he had most likely had a mental illness that made it hard or impossible to distinguish reality from fantasy. Maybe he imagined that he was tutored by Buckland. All of this came together in an unwell mind and he just latched onto it so hardcore And he told himself the same story over and over and over again so many times that he really began to believe it. He tried to sell his story in 1968 to John Outlaw, but he didn't go big enough for the story to catch on. But then Jack Chick believed him. And Jack Chick enthusiastically yes-anded every story that Todd told him. He got on TV. He got leadership positions in churches. He got a speaking tour. And he finally felt special and validated and not only right, but also important. Everyone likes to feel important. And he had access to young women who he could influence and abuse. And in the process, John Todd not only believed his own lies, but he became a huge player in what became the satanic panic and what later became QAnon. That's how I see this story. It's completely fascinating. I think it's wild that like some lunatic read a couple of letters in Playboy and then 50 years later, we have people trying to overthrow American democracy. Uh, I think I'm not so much surprised that a guy like John Todd existed because like, you know, let's face it, like we all know those people. We all know like nutcases in our lives that will just say anything to anybody and you believe him the first time you're like, oh, this guy sounds really interesting. And then you have another conversation. You're like, oh. A lot of stuff that this guy's talking about just yeah. I think we all know like the very small scale version of John Todd. But I think the major takeaway was how willing people were to go on, like to just go along with what was obviously an extremely tall tale, and how willing people were just to believe this and to like base their lives around and base entire social movements around this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, fantasize about killing their children over this. I think if if there's anything that we can take away from this, it's that people love to be told something that confirms what they already believe. And if that story that confirms what they already believe happens to take them way further down the road of what they already believed, they will go right along with it. And if someone like John Todd takes all of the things that a person dislikes and fears from Star Wars and political leaders and commercialized Christianity and rock music and witches and rich people and connects them all together into one thing like a spider web and then blames that one thing on a group of people that they dislike or fear, people will buy it hook, line, and sinker. And that's what happened. I couldn't have said it better myself, um, so I won't try to thanks you guys so much for tuning into this episode of the leaving eden podcast um if you like our show you can follow us on facebook and instagram at leaving eden podcast on twitter at leaving eden pod join our patreon where there is an extended version of this episode and that is patreon.com slash leaving eden podcast you can follow us on twitter at leaving eden pod if i didn't say that already join our facebook group which is facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus you can join our subreddit which is reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus sadie do you want to plug your social media 
Sure, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music. You can follow me on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie. And you can follow me on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Uh, thank you so much. You guys have a great day. Bye bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.